Welcome. I am your host, Manpreet, a.k.a. MMA Lock of the Night, and your boy on Twitter at MMALOTN. Joining me always is my Canadian brethren. We got my guy CJ Saftik, or Cody Saftik, I should say, and you guys can follow him at CJ Saftik on Twitter. Uh, we are here propping you up for UFC Vegas 25, headlined by a big light heavyweight tight title, not even a title fight. Let me get my words together. We are headlined by a light heavyweight fight between Yuri Prohaska and Dominic Reyes, and it should get us a better idea of what's going to be happening with the light heavyweight division especially if Prohaska ends up on the winning end this weekend. Really looking forward to this fight. A couple fun fights sprinkled throughout it. Cody, on a level of 1 to 10, what is your level of excitement for this card this weekend? Yeah, excited for the card. There's a lot of fights that I think are going to be really you know, fun to watch. They're going to be entertaining. They're going to be a lot of guys on the card that I enjoy. But I'll be completely honest with you. From a betting standpoint, from a prop standpoint, which is what we're going to be doing tonight, there's not a whole lot of spots that I like. And the few that I do like, are like two, three to one. So there's not a whole lot of plus money unless we're going to be chasing a couple. Nailed Randy Brown last week, which was great, like plus 550. But just the other spots that I didn't get, you know, it accumulates to a break-even week. I want to go out there, get the best spots I can. And again, they're a little little chalky high price. So glad to be joined as always. And uh, we've got some PFL heater picks going right now. So exactly. uh, I, again, with PFL, right, you're getting these guys with three to one favorites or four to one favorites. If you feel comfortable with them, if you feel safe with them, then you can try to parlay some of this together. And, and this is the same thing here. Maybe... I'm not one to parlay props together. That just seems like risky business. But again, we'll try to find the best single spots that we can and, and mix it up, try to make it a profitable weekend. For sure. When I was putting putting together my best three bets or prop bets for this uh, for this uh, stream, I was having a little bit of trouble. And unfortunately, I had to pick a couple of chalk spots, but I thought that they're decently priced given the circumstances. So it is what it is, but we are here to still to break down the best props for you for every single fight. Appreciate everybody stopping by. Make sure you guys drop that like. Make sure you guys drop that subscribe. And just a reminder, tomorrow we will be doing that 9 p.m. Eastern final weigh-in show. No Cody this time. I already had like five people hit me up and they're like, where's Cody? Where's Cody? I'm like... You guys get enough of him on Thursdays and Dogger Pass. Come on. I'm trying to showcase some other talent here. So I got some good friends coming on for the show tomorrow. MMA Knockout Bets on Twitter, as well as Lucrative MMA Betting. He's a great dude as well. And then uh, Sparring with Reality, Luke, uh, is going to be on as well, too. So once again, I'll remind you guys at the end of the show. So hopefully, guys, you can join us for that as well, 9 p.m. Eastern tomorrow. All right. Let's not waste too much more time. Let's get into the card here. First and foremost, we got Luke Sanders going up against Felipe Colares. We got minus 140 on Luke Sanders and plus 120 on uh, Felipe Colares. And look at the line movement on this one, right? You got Luke Sanders opening up at minus 205. He's all the way down to minus 140. A lot of people are fading the Luke Sanders train, and I don't really blame him. You know, I mean, it, he seems to be one of those guys that falls into the untrusty, trustworthy uh, group of guys, right? He has all the skills in the world. Has has a great wrestling background. Uh, obviously, he's very uh, um, high paced and puts on a lot of pressure on his opponents. But then he just makes these stupid mistakes every now and then, specifically in the Nate Manus fight, trading in the pocket a little bit too long with a guy who's much better than you in that realm. And they paid for it. Get uh, Nate Manus ends up getting the club and sub in that fight. Uh, it seemed like a fight that Luke Sanders should have won, right? I thought he won the first round, and it looked like he was going on to win the second round just off of pace and and staying in his in his opponent's face. The one thing about Felipe Kalarish, that guy's not going to go away too easily. Just ask Montel Jackson, who was throwing everything in the kitchen sink at that guy, and he just would not go down. But we still get Montel Jackson getting a, a dis dominant decision victory that night. But Kalarish seemed, seemed to show some solid spots in that fight. Not to mention, 
when he was a plus 300 underdog to Domingo Polarte, the fight before that showed off some great things there, especially with his jiu-jitsu being able, able to control Domingo Polarte in some weird positions. So good uh, good job on uh, Kolarish in that fight. But this one, I, I have a little bit of a head-scratcher moment here, right? It, it seems skill for skill. You got to go with Luke Sanders. But then, like, when you throw the fight IQ into the uh, equation, it gets a little bit iffy and it gets a little bit uh, questionable. I ended up going on the Kolarish side here. <clears throat> but not with utmost confidence. I think this is going to be one of those we need Luke Sanders to have a banana peel moment where he just slips and, and falls and we see Clark jump on top of it and, and start using his jiu-jitsu, whether it's to control him or find the submission. But I, I, I just can't trust Luke Sanders with my money. I know a lot of people out there outside of myself are way more confident in Luke Sanders than I am and I'm maybe giving him a little bit too much uh, slack here uh, for uh, for the performances that he's had up until this point, but I still do lean on the Kolarish side here. I think his striking is good enough to hang with Luke Sanders and then eventually get you know either a takedown, which I think is going to be harder to do considering Sanders is a wrestling background, or another club in some situation similar to the Nate Manis fight. Uh, I do lean Kolarish. I do lean Kolarish inside the distance as well. And last time I believe I looked here is around plus 330. It is now at plus 270. So there is a little bit of money coming in on that. And uh, yeah, that's kind of the line that I like for this. The prop specifically is the Clarsh inside the distance. How are you looking at it? Yeah, I mean, you basically nailed it. We're talking about Luke Sanders. The only way he loses this fight is if he slips on a banana peel. But then lucky for people looking to fade him, that's all he seemingly does is slip on banana peels. It's extremely frustrating. It's extremely hard to watch. I myself am a big Luke Sanders fan. But... <clears throat> He looks like a million bucks until he all of a sudden doesn't. All of his losses, you can make an excuse for him. The Eri Alcantara fight, right? He's easily up. Probably a 10-8 first round for Luke Sanders. He's absolutely mauling him. He, he lands like 96 significant strikes through two and a half minutes into the second round. And then uh, he gets caught that knee bar from left field. It was like, oh man, what a fluke submission. Then the Sukman Tath fight, that is a fight that he stands in the pocket a little bit too long. Again, wins the first round, looks really good in the first round. In the second round, I mean, he's playing with his food, standing in front of Sukman Tath, when he should just be using his wrestling a little bit more. And sure enough, he ends up getting caught again. Uh, you look at the Ronnie Yaya fight, you're playing leg lock game with leg lock master. <laughs> then the Nate Maness fight, and, and again, you mentioned it, he stands in the pocket a little bit too long. But as far as what he brings to the table, he's got every other skill other than ability to take a punch. His wrestling is very good. I mean, good in the sense that he's able to muscle you down on opponents. He's wily, good striking, good left hand, power in both hands, really. The Hen and Barrow fight, you see, even though it's a ghost aversion of Hen and Barrow, you see what he's able to do when he really mixes it together and puts it all together. Uh, have his losses come to a good level of competition, maybe outside of Andre Sukmantath? Yeah, you could say. But even the Nate Manis fight, it's the same shit. The first round, he's killing Manis. He's got him hurt. And then he stands in the pocket a little bit too long. He gets caught, eventually gets submitted. That was the, that was the total package because we've seen him just get submitted on a bonehead decision. We've seen him get knocked out on a bonehead decision. That one he gets knocked out and then gets submitted. But there's no denying that the skill is there. When I look at Felipe Corrales, uh, he's durable, certainly is durable. You talked about the Montel Jackson fight. He takes a whopping in that one and keeps continuing on. He's only 27 years old. He's pretty long, big for the division. The problem that I'm getting at is that he just doesn't bring any variables to the table. As far as his submission game goes, he's a Team Noguera guy, but haven't really seen him really put it together. He's 0-3, in the, or he's 1-2 in the UFC. Uh, all three fights have gone to decision. But the troubling here, the troubling part, is the, the punch output. So in his first fight against Draldo de Freitas, he lands 21 significant strikes in 15 minutes. The second fight against Domingo Pilarte, 23 significant strikes over 15 minutes. And then that Montel Jackson fight, he landed 7 significant strikes over 15 minutes. So the output's not there. So when you look at his regional show career, when has he knocked out anybody? He shows two TKO victories on his record. 
One's a retirement mid-round. One's like in a second pro fight against, you know, a, a non-existent fighter in Brazil, right? So, so the knockout's not really there. The punch output is not really there. He's giving up takedowns in all of these fights. He got taken down six times by Geraldo de Freitas, 11 times by Montel Jackson. You see how Montel just absolutely controls him the entire time. So honestly, the way I see this fight going is Nate, Luke Sanders is going to go out there and control him everywhere he wants to. It's whether or not he gets caught. And when you talk about Nate Mann as former TKO champion, guy's got some power in his hands. When you talk about Andre Sugmantath, you know, a credited striker trading under Henry Hoof, you know, he had some power in his hands. Yuri Alcantara, a guy that had fought who's who's the guys in the division, at least those are credible losses. Ronnie Yaya, fucking ADCC champion. Those are credible losses, right? This guy doesn't bring those same variables to the table. He doesn't have that same submission game, so I'm not worried about Luke getting caught in the leg lock. He doesn't bring the same KO power, striking ability, so I'm not worried about Luke getting caught. So again, you're going on Luke Sanders, who's just like an absolute notorious apple pie shitter. Very, very tough to stomach for sure. Um, the way I would look at this one is if I was going to take Luke Sanders, I'm thinking Luke Sanders by decision. Because again, if we want to talk about that Montel Jackson fight, Montel put a beating on him and did knock him down. But like this kid can take a beating. So Luke's going to go out there. And if he tries to finish him early, not going to work well for Luke. This kid will take the beating. Luke will get tired. Luke will make a mistake. We don't want that. We want Luke to go in with a resemblance of a game plan. And I know, I know you're screaming at your screen right now. <laughs> when does Luke Sanders ever go in with anything resembling a game plan? I agree. But I'm finding it hard to pick against the guy who's just the much more skilled fighter in every aspect. So uh, I got to go with Luke Sanders. And uh, the, the play that I liked was the Luke Sanders by decision, which was plus 120. Plus 230, actually. Sorry, yeah, Unless, yeah, yeah, my bad. My, unless my, it's changed. <laughs> no, no, yeah. It's, it's, it's close to even on the money line. So the way Luke Sanders fights is he's like a, a, a kill-or-be-killed guy. So that, that makes you scared, like, oh, shit, he's either going to get a finish or he's going to be finished. Why are you chasing this decision prop? It's that Luke will put it on. A, I'm expecting Luke to put it on him and Kralis to take it. So it'll be decision. Two, Luke Sanders has been fighting in the UFC at 135 pounds. His last fight with Nate Maness was at 140 pound catchweight. And this one, because he's in, coming in on short notice, is at 145. So his power is going to be less than it is at 135. His finishing ability will be less than it is. I'm just hoping coming off a knockout loss in the manner that he did, getting a little bit older in his career, realizing writing's on the wall, realizing he could be released from the UFC if he doesn't get his shit together here soon. Come on, man. Just like play to your gifts and like take this guy down and grind him a little bit. When you're, when you're standing, beat him up. The last stat I want to throw in there, because I'm not a guy that, you know, always bases things exactly on stats, but this one's, this one's pretty crazy, right? So this is just by your average, right? It's your fight average, is that Felipe Corrales averages 1.13 strike per minute. 1.13. And as I've already outlined, he's a very low output guy. But Luke Sanders, and he's had a lot of fights in the UFC, averages 6.21 strikes per so. So really, again, numbers are, isn't everything, but you retape study all these fights, and it's it's apparent then, as it is apparent on the number, Luke Sanders throws six to one on the strike count. So if this thing stays standing, Luke, Luke Sanders is just going to beat him up. If he decides to take this thing to the ground, I think Sanders has a lot of success on the ground as well. It's, you know, the, the guy is chinny and has screwed me many times. So how, how much do you want to invest on him, right? Yeah, I think that's what a lot of people's like pause this year is it's Luke Sanders. Once he yeah. starts distancing himself from like the Nate Maness loss and all these other losses, I think people will be a little bit more trustworthy of him. Uh speaking of which, can we give a hats off and a round of applause to the quality, the picture, and the lighting of my guy CJ Sadik's <laughs> setup right now? My guy Pat Mayo has hooked you the fuck up. Is that is that correct? 
Yeah, I mean, it's been looking spotty. Hopefully, and then still looking at it, yours is obviously a lot more illuminated. But <laughs> I got to figure out how to like put the lights up, maybe because they're coming, they're coming from the ground as it is now. Anyway, give you that menacing all, look. It's all good. It's all, it's all a work in progress. <laughs> for sure, for sure, it's definitely the best it's been since uh, we we started this show together. That's something I'll definitely admit. All right, let's move on to the next fight that we got is. Uh, uh, a Punjabi, uh, an Indo-Canadian. We got my guy KB Puller going up against Andreas Mihalaitis. Uh, obviously, the the the, uh, the money line seems chalky as hell on Mihalaitis, and I think it is far too wide. And I think the reason that is is because we have uh, a similar Jacob Malkoon effect here with uh, KB Buller, which is the last thing that we've seen from this guy is he got starched. Not only starched, but starched by a jab. And a lot of people are going to be honing in on that, but they'll just completely throw away the fact that it's from a guy in Tom Breeze who's a very good striker, a very much better level of a, uh, a fighter than KB Buller at that point in time. We're talking about a KB Buller that was 8-0 coming into the UFC, mainly fighting Canadian Canadian regional MMA journeymen, right? Let's, let's be honest. We're familiar with a lot of these guys. A lot of them probably wouldn't stack up that well in the UFC. I'd say the best win that he had on the regional scene was against former UFC fighter Matt Dwyer, where he beat him over five rounds. But... Still not the, the biggest of wins, right? You, when you start coming into the UFC and your first fight is Tom motherfucking Breeze. Say what you want about Tom Breeze, but the guy is very, very skilled, especially when he's in a realm and in a matchup that stylistically favors him. And that's exactly what happened that night he fought KB Buller. Andreas Michaelitis, on the other hand, very unfortunate UFC debut with that uh, weird stoppage at the end of the first round where it looked like he was falling outside of the cage. I, you know, I think everybody and their mother would have been like, if he had known that was a door, he probably would not have sat back the way that he did. But it was obvious that he was rocked and he was hurt and he was complaining about shots to the back of the head. Unfortunately, the ref did not deem them shots to the back to the head and they had uh, uh, given the, the victory to Modestus Pekhausis that night. But... T taping Mihalaitis, I don't mind what I see from the guy. He throws a lot of spinning stuff. He throws with a lot of heat. Obviously, that uh, combination that he was able to take out Marcel Fortuna with was very impressive uh, over there in Titan FC. And he moved from Greece all the way to MMA Masters in Miami to start to hone his game and really start to get better training partners. And it's seeming to work out for him during that stretch that he had right before coming to the UFC. Now I'll give him a pass on the Bukowski's fight as I thought he did look pretty good there. You know, he was dealing with a guy who was much bigger than him, a weight class higher as well, not to mention, you know, that fight was at 205. This one's going to be at 185. Um, it, 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 I was impressed with his ability to close the distance and get off the shots that he was able to. Now here against Buller, like, we can't completely write Buller off just because of that one performance against Tom Brees. Let's, get, let's cut him some slack. This might be a Jacob Malkoon moment where it's like, Okay, Al Hassan was supposed to go in there and absolutely mollywop this guy, and he was not able to. Malkoon gets his game going, which is grappling, absolutely grapple fucks Mal uh, Al Hassan to death, and then eventually gets that uh, decision victory. What does KB bring to the table, though? I'm not sure if you have more access to these United MMA uh, tape uh, compared to the rest of us, uh, but it seems like he like he's a guy that likes to fight from range, likes to use his long Muay Thai style, seems to have a sneaky jiu-jitsu game with a couple... Anaconda chokes and north south chokes on his uh, on his record, but again, level of competition probably not the greatest. So maybe it's easier to pull off those types of submissions against those guys like the Derek Boyles. And I, I'm trying to remember the the other guy that he got that submission victory over. But I I wouldn't be surprised if we see a better KB Buller this time around. 
with that said, I just think the hard-nosed, aggressive version of Andreas Mihalaitis will probably be able to break KB Bullock here. I don't think it's going to come as quickly as the Tom Breeze finished it, but I think eventually he's going to be able to crack that uh, that armor of KB and then eventually find that chin and start to to really put it on him. It doesn't seem to me that KB does the best when it comes to uh, being pressured and somebody staying in his face, and I expect exactly that to happen here with Mihalaitis, who's going to be at a size and reach disadvantage, but I do think that he'll be able to go through that just as he showed us in the Bukowski's fight, and I think he's going to be able to finish Buller probably. I'll, I'll give Buller a little bit more slack. I'll say probably in the second round we'll see Mihalaitis actually finish him. Uh, but I'm not. I'm not the most. I'm not planting my my flag on the ground on either side here. But in terms of a prop, the over under being at one and a half. I think the over one and a half is not too bad. Minus 125 is not too bad. I think this one will get stretched, but I think we'll see Mihalaitis get the finish a little bit later in that second round. So even Mihalaitis by KO is plus 100. I was hoping we'd get a little bit better of a price tag, but uh, that's what we're with. Do you see this as I do, or do you know more about KB than I do? No, no, I agree with you. KB Bular is a bit of a thinking man. You know, he's very smart, very spoken to him, you know, educated fighter. But I think that's kind of to his detriment. So when you look at his pro career, I mean, he, he's 4-0, and and then he takes a five-year, five-and-a-half-year gap. Doesn't fight between 2013 to 2018, like right at the end of 2018. And uh, when he was interviewed about that, he was like, oh, man, like back in 2013, he's like, I watched one of my teammates at a local show. Go, like, this is his brother. This yeah. his brother. Face, face destroyed, right? Like broken <laughs> yeah. orbital. And he's just like, no dice. And by the way, uh, you're saying it's his brother. Uh, he, this, he's no relation to Arjan Bular, who also... No, no, no. <laughs> no. I get that all the time. People are like, well, he can wrestle. You're like, what do you, what do you mean he can it's wrestle? Like, Indians in MMA. His fucking brother was an Olympian. <laughs> like, no, 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 no. Um, yeah, so he sees his brother get stretched off, and he's just like, dude, this is not for me. And just all of a sudden takes five and a half years off. How would... Apparently he trained the whole time. Apparently, he, you know, he honed up his skills, but never really got that hard work in. Then when you see the, his list of opponents since he came back, Corey Atkinson, 4-8. and eight, Derek Boyle was 13-12, but he's on like a seven-fight losing streak. Cody Cron, 16-13, and 13, against very long, lengthy losing streak. Matt Dwyer, UFC veteran. You know, uh, Matt Dwyer fought in the UFC to 170 pounds, right? KB Boulard, foot four with a 78-inch reach. So again, be the UFC veteran and biggest name on his record, but just haven't really seen enough meat on the bone to really get, grab a great read of, of how good he's going to be. Now, I'll give him one thing. In the in the Dwyer fight, goes five rounds, cardio looked decent. He lands a really nice question mark kick, uh, caught Matt Dwyer off balance, and put it on him a little bit. But looking at Dwyer's recent performances, he doesn't seem to be the same guy he was in years past. Did KB Bular, you know, did he take advantage of that? I, I, I don't know. But then you see him make his UFC debut. Short notice, right? Always going to be tough. Tom Breeze, come on, right? Very tough. But to get dropped by a power jab, you know, like drop, looked out of it, didn't really look willing to overly engage, that's when I start scratching my head. So, again, no relation to RJ Abular. And what I mean by that is the wrestling is just not there. I don't think that wrestling is key to victory in the UFC. His striking, he just doesn't seem like he's a UFC-level striker. As far as being able to say, well, he was undefeated, and he is maybe he's got a really good chin, he's six foot four. he's got a 78-inch reach. Those are variables. The manner in which Breeze put him down is just extremely worrisome. So I would have to go Mikalitas. I'm going to agree with you, though. I don't like this money line at all. I mean, um, we've seen this all the time, right? You come in the UFC, you lose your debut, you take six or eight months off, you come back, and immediately everyone's like, that guy's no good. He fought yeah. the one time he lost. And just a load of improvements. You know, you get the monkey off your back. It's your sophomore effort. The pressure's off. You're feeling a lot better about you. You know, you, you go out there and you, you deliver. And could KB deliver enough to beat... Andreas Mikulitis, yeah, yeah, for sure. But 
again, I got to go with Mikolitis, who's fought the better level of competition. You know, he's a guy that fought for a Cage Warriors world title uh, in the UFC against Bukaukas. It's first of all, the round's close. Second of all, the cage, you know, that, that's, but, but it was very those, unfortunate. Yeah, but it's those 12 to six elbows in the back of the head <laughs> that caused <laughs> yeah. him to be discombobulated and fall <laughs> off the cage, anyways. So it's like a whole trifecta of things going bad for him. Uh, well, I guess the first thing wasn't going bad for him. He was competitive early in that first round. And so I think that's also stuff that's, that's worth noting is that, uh, you know, he's fighting at the better level, he's fought the better level of opposition. He is 32 years old, but I see he's been spending some time at King's MMA. I would just like to hope that if this stays as a striking battle, he would have the, the slight advantages. And then you look at uh, his loss to Modestus Bokowskis. And, and then Bokowskis in hindsight, right? He probably got robbed by Mikhail Olekschuk, right? And this this Martin Hamlet, who he had beaten for the title in Cage Warriors, that guy just won the first fight in the PFL show and like yeah. looks solid, look solid. But you see in these developing European talent guys, you, all of a sudden it's not – there used to be a time, right? Or it's just like, oh, he's from Greece. Like Anthony Christodoulou is the only other Greek fighter. And, uh, I know Elias Theodore reps it, but he is Canadian at the end of the day. But it's like, no, since then, like all these areas, because now they have some guy from Brazil who's gone there to teach jiu-jitsu. And some guy that wrestled on the world team ends up teaching classes. And, and somebody ends up as your kick. And, and it's just like everything's getting developed. And I feel like a Michaelitis is on level with a KB Bular. You have a prospect from Greece, prospect versus Canada. But... Nicolaitis has spent a lot of time moving all throughout. He went to the States for a while. He spent a lot of time working uh, in the States, whereas KB Bular is the top training partner for Tanner Bozer. Tanner Bozer, heavyweight, and, you know, you know, very much just leg kick from the outside and dance around, right? So I, I got to go with Nicolaitis as well. Don't love the money line. I'm going to agree with your assessment that over one and a half. KB, hold on, baby. <laughs> if, you, if you're going to go down after that, go down after that. But yeah. uh, over one and a half, that's, that's the one I'm looking at as well. Yeah, I'm hoping, you know, obviously we don't have many Indians in the MMA sphere. We have St. Lion who's doing his thing over in 1FC. We have Arjun Buller who's obviously over there at 1FC about to fight for the heavyweight title. But come on, KB, give it, give us a dub. Remember that Remember that one guy that lost to uh, Song Yadong? Backrat. Uh, yeah, him. yeah. And and he he lost and then he popped by, got popped by Usada and then he got cut. Yeah, and, <laughs> so. and uh, you know, straight out, I know it sounds mean, but like I, I was like, I got to find footage on this guy. And like he had done this type of like Indian mud wrestling. That was like his base. And I was like, oh, I can't bet this guy, man. Like, like you, they just get like mudded up and went out there and wrestled. And like, I'm sure it was tough. But I think you're talking about like, Kabaddi. Kabaddi. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Did you watch Rugrug last night? And uh, on yeah, he got fucking wrecked. Right. Okay, but like, Sengali's wrestling champions. Come on, man. Come on. <laughs> they're huge. They're larger than life action figure type guys. But it's like that style is not going to work in MMA. You know, like a Greco-Roman style, a folk style. That works a lot better, man. Um, but whatever. Pe pe people enjoy it, right? They enjoy seeing clash of styles, no matter sure. what the style is. Shout out to my guy Dylan Glenn here reminding us that Barat Kandar is technically still in the UFC. He's just in the USADA testing pool still. <laughs> no, I don't want to see that guy in the UFC anymore, let's be honest. <laughs> All right, let's move on to the next fight. Let's let's keep this thing moving on. Next up, we got Sam Hughes against Loma Lukbumi. You want to talk about Chuck. Uh, Loma Lukbumi has all of it. She's at minus 390 right now, plus 320 on Sam Hughes. Uh, I kind of understand the love for Loma here, but there is a little bit of cause, con cause for concern if Sam Hughes decides to get that wrestling going because that is kind of the the the, the Achilles heel of Loma's game that we've seen. Obviously, Angela Hill was very uh, successful in doing that, getting her to the ground and kind of grinding her out that way. And even Jinyu Fry at the beginning of that third round, she's like, I know I'm down two rounds, 
let me just take this bitch down and see what I can do. And she did exactly that. Unfortunately, she just didn't do the greatest job in terms of holding her down. And then obviously Loma was able to get back to her feet and start getting his striking going. That's kind of where Loma was born, right? The Muay Thai game, the clinch game is very good for her. She just throws up vicious knees and just knows how to manipulate the upper half of your body so well to really make those knees super effective. And then obviously her kicking game from the outside is very effective too, right? Even though she's only five and two in the MMA world, we know she has hundreds of fights in the Muay Thai realm. And that's probably the difference here with Sam Hughes, who we know what the regional circuit is like, right? Especially with the amateur scene. You just fight a couple guys on the amateur scene. Then you get on over to the pro scene. And those are really the only fights that you have. With Loma Lukbumi, you're talking about a girl who's just having all these, uh, you know, uh, unsanctioned fights over there in Thailand and just having a, trying to get all this experience in the Muay Thai realm. But the fact of the matter is she's only had seven pro MMA fights. And the difference here is that they have to worry about takedowns compared to Muay Thai where it's just, you know, they'll trip you in the clinch or whatever it is. And they don't really get to follow up when you get get taken down. With Loma Lukbumi, she seems to be working on that part of her game. One thing you'll see that's very evident, especially with her IG and her social medias, is she's trying to work on her strength. She's naturally a 105er, but unfortunately for her, they don't have that division inside the UFC. So she's going to have to start making a claim for herself at 115 pounds, which is what she's doing right now, and putting on that bulk, putting on that strength, putting on that muscle so that she's able to work the takedown defense a little bit better against some of these girls who are going to be looking like, okay, there's no way I'm going to outstrike this girl. Let me try to take her down and see if I can beat her that way. Does Sam Hughes bring that to the table? kind of, but not not really, right? I, I think Sam Hughes is still green to my eyes. She is one of the better prospects in this division, in my opinion, but I think stylistically that this is a horrible matchup for her. I think she's going to struggle to get her down, and then the longer this stays on the feet, the more she's going to get brutalized on the feet. So I am going to be taking Loma here, and I think the best path to victory for her here is going to be that uh, decision. Now, a lot of people would be like, oh, look what Tisha Torres did to Sam Hughes, and she was able to get out of there in the first round. Let's cut some slack for Sam Hughes, right? She took that fight on less than a week's notice she came in during fight week uh she cut all the weight she made the weight uh and then she went in there against somebody she you know who has incredible amount of skill and experience in Tisha Doris who's just been around the game for so long uh she just absolutely whooped her on the feet and that's probably one of the more aggressive versions of Tisha Torres we've ever seen so not a really good concoction for uh Sam Hughes in her debut there but here she gets a full training camp against Loma Lukbumi but I think it's still not going to be enough I think we see Lukbumi absolutely torture on the feet, uh, uh, handle her in the clinch, uh, you know, just give us the full MMA game. And one last thing I'll say about Loma, she isn't completely a fish out of the water on the ground, right? Like in the Invicta fights, you do see her at times going for takedowns and controlling women from on top. So she's really rounding out her MMA game, and I can't wait to see what she brings to the table this weekend. So in terms of a prop, like I said, Loma Lukumi via decision, that is at minus 135. Don't mind that line, especially considering the money line is at minus 390, minus 400. Do you see this any different than me? Do you give Sam Hughes more of a chance than I'm giving her? No, no, I don't. And this is another this is another spot where I talked about in the beginning of the show. It's like I just don't like the lines. Like the ones that I do like are just blown up at this point. Yeah. Um, you would like this fight to go the distance, right? But it's minus 255. So it's just too much for it to go the distance. And with Sam Hughes, I, I'm going to cut her some slack as well, man. Who, who the hell makes a short notice debut against Tisha Torres? Like, my God, talk about a yeah. difficult task. On uh, short notice. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, but the one thing that remains is that you're coming in short notice regardless fighting tisha torres huge task regardless is that tisha torres has 12 pro mma wins and like seven amateur mma wins and has never knocked out an opponent right and in that first round like everything she threw landed flush on sam hughes she was aggressive she dropped her she hurt her sam hughes survives gets out of the round and then they have the doctor has one look at her and 
you can just tell from the body language she's not she doesn't really want to be there, right? Nope. And it's very understandable. You're fighting short notice, UFC debut, Tisha Torres. It's like my God, talk about you know a, a bad a bad go at things. But uh, it, it, it was the body language wasn't quite there. When I think about Loma Luka Bume, it's like quite the opposite, right? You should never use Wikipedia to cap your fight. But I, this line that I noticed is great, right? Luka Bume began training Muay Thai at seven years old at her father Bume Supasara's gym, right? She began competing against girls, but soon was facing boys due to lack of competition. She eventually gained several national titles, competed on the Thai national team, right? She's a gold medalist at the Vietnam Games. She's a gold medalist at, at the World Muay Thai Championship in Bangkok, Belarus, and Mexico. Got a bronze medal in Thailand, got a silver medal in Sweden. Bro, she has like 150 amateur fights, right? 150 Muay Thai fights. And she's still only like in her early 20s. She began fighting at seven years. Right. She began fighting at seven years old. My buddy Donnelly, he's over in Thailand. And yeah. They got this kid that's looking for a fight right now, right? He's born in 2006. Okay. He's effectively two years younger than my dog. And he's got <laughs> 258 fights. It's like, it's intense, man. It's like, holy shit. But they fight all the time. Don't get me wrong. But it's like fight, fight, fight. So again, when I see, when I see Sam Hughes get busted up by Tisha Torres, have a cut open up above the eye, look at the doctor and be like, yeah, I'm done. I think Lokobume does not have that, those same instincts. Like it's a different world, you know, uh, it's just think about the bad spot she's been in her life. You know? It's the same thing with Francis Ngannou against Stipe Miocic. Someone made a great point in the first fight. They're like, oh, I'm surprised Stipe wasn't able to put him away. He was so tired. It's like it doesn't matter how tired he is and what kind of bad position is he on the ground. Think about how many worse spots he's been in his life. So you persevere, right? Loma Lukabume, you really got to take her out and put her in these bad spots. Now, typical Thai fighter, she's a little undersized. She should be fighting at 105 pounds. You mentioned it. And her wrestling and her takedown defense, not very good. Her grappling, getting better, but still not very good. Now, you put her at Tiger Muay Thai. She's got the Hickman brothers. George Hickman's a wrestling coach. Peter Yan's out of that camp. There's, a, there's a, a lot of good strikers that go to Tiger Muay Thai and actually walk out of it with legitimate wrestling and grappling skills. Luke Bume's got to do the same thing. Now, tough go. We talked about fighting Angela Hill, uh, the tough go in your debut. Luke Bume been there, too. You know, she fought Angela Hill. That's a tough go as well. You see the Jin Yu Frey fight. She's getting better. This fight, I expect her to be better. Sam Hughes would have to go in there, flip the script, and shoot those takedowns. Problem with that is when you watch any of Sam Hughes' fights, she likes to keep them standing. The fight with Vanessa Demopoulos, she's boxing her up for three rounds. As soon as the fight hits the ground in the fourth, she gets uh, hit with the inverted triangle choke. Again, Vanessa Demopoulos is really good on the ground, so you know no issues there. But it, her style is to keep standing. So I think Luka Bume wins this fight standing. She wins the fight in the clinch. She batters her up with some, some short, dirty strikes, like you know elbows, knees to the body, softens her up. But I want to bet fight goes the distance. I don't know that I can bet that because of Sam Hughes' heart. I want to bet Luke Bume by decision again. And what if she puts her away late? I would, at this kind of money line, I would love to take a shot on the underdog. But it's like, I, I, I agree with Luke Bume. I just don't love that 4-1. to And there's not a great prop on it. So if I, if I had a gun to my head, had to make a prop, I'm going with the same thing you were saying. Luke Bume by decision seems like the best number I can get for a likely enough outcome. But it wouldn't be surprised me if it was a Luke Bumu TKO as well, and I lost that prop bet. So I'm not looking to heavily invest in this one personally. Yeah, the 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 the, the intriguing part here is that we got Loma Luke Bumu by TKO at plus four ten. Not too bad of a line, but take this thinking into consideration. Like if she takes one round to go out there and absolutely badger Hughes, maybe in the second or third round she can get out of there, and that's where we can start uh, honing in on those round props. You got plus seven seventy five on Loma Lukwami to win in round two. You got plus fourteen 
1475 for her to win in round three. So maybe that could be the approach if you think she can go out there and actually dismantle Hughes. I think it would take at least a round for it to settle in, and then it might start being a little bit too much. Do you, do you like that approach? Is that something you'd be privy to? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> I, I think that's actually a smart way of looking at it. Yeah. So if you guys do think Loma could finish it, I highly doubt it comes in the first round. So you guys should go definitely out there and check out those second and third round props. All right, let's move on to the next fight here. We got Kai Kamaka, the third, taking on TJ Brown. Uh, both of these guys coming off of losses in terms of um, uh, the odds here. We got minus 145 on Kamaka, plus 125 on TJ Brown. And uh, this is one of the few dogs that I actually do like on the card. Now, when Kai Kamaka came into the UFC, and especially had that fight of the night performance against um, uh, Tony Kelly, a lot of people are like, Circle Kai Kamaka. This guy could seems like he could be something in the UFC. Great striking technique. Seems to go out there on with durability. Seems like he can go in into a war and come out the winner. But I think that the one thing that we were blinded by in that Tony Kelly fight is kind of you know his gas tank's a little bit iffy. You know what I mean? When, once the fight gets a little bit further. When a fight truly isn't going his way, he starts to suck wind a bit. Luckily for him, Tony Kelly was also sucking wind a little bit in their fight. So we didn't really get to see how bad Kai Kamaka could look if his opponent had better cardio. But we did get a chance to see that against Jonathan Pierce, who was able to, you know, survive that first round against Kamaka and then really start to put him on it, put it on him in the second round. Eventually takes him down and just ground and pounds him to shit. Like Kai Kamaka could not get up. Seems like he was really huffing and puffing. And that's very weird to think considering the majority of Kamaka Kamaka's victory have come by decision that means he's made it to the round three as many times as he has and has never been put out but i guess it's level of competition now right now you're in the ufc you're fighting guys that can actually take it to that next gear the later the fight goes and that's exactly what jonathan pierce was able to do and he springs the upside as like a, i think he was a plus 230 underdog that night so big ups to anybody that was able to take uh, jonathan pierce that night now here he's going up against a grappler in tj brown who wants to get the fight to the ground and it doesn't seem like the grappling or the takedown defense of kamaka is that good and that's that's where my question marks are uh, for Kai Kamaka is how does he win this fight? Is he going to go out there and outstrike TJ Brown for three rounds? I, I don't think so. I think TJ Brown has the better cardio here. Is he going to go there and knock out TJ Brown? I don't think that's going to happen either because who has he knocked out recently, right? The guy has no power in his hands. Right. So I think that TJ Brown will be successful in taking this fight to the ground. And I know the joke on Twitter this whole week has been, I guess I'm going to the betting window to lose more money on TJ Brown once again. But I think he gets his hand raised this weekend. I think this is a great matchup for him. I don't think he has to worry too much about the power coming back his way from Kamaka. And, uh, you know, as long as he doesn't get Marcelo teamed again, like he did against Jordan Griffin, I think he's good to go here. I think he could potentially, you know, this is my favorite possible round three prop uh, for, uh, for this entire Entire fight card we got tj brown i believe it was plus 1500 for him to win in round three yep it's still plus 1500 but i think he gets it done by submission which is still plus 525 which i think is an absolutely crazy line considering uh tj brown's approach in this fight so i like tj brown i think he's gonna outlast kai kamaka hopefully he stretches it all the way to the third round and chokes him out there but uh, there is a possibility that i can do something similar to what jonathan pierce was able to do and get him out there in the second round am i being too harsh on Kai Kamaka here, do you have a higher ceiling for him than I do? Nah, not overly. I mean, he came into the UFC and I wasn't 100% hyped on him to begin with, but he was young, right? 25 years old, and he seems to have good technical boxing skills. Strong guy, physical guy, but yeah, cardio's not there. And as far as his boxing skills go, he throws caution in the wind sometimes, loads up, lands his best shot, the best shot he's got, and it's like doesn't even really affect him. He shows zero TKO wins in his career. He's never knocked out an opponent professionally. 
But that Tony Kelly fight, Tony Kelly took the fight on short notice. Tony Kelly comes in and is not in great shape. For the first round, Kai Kamaka unloads on him. The second round, Kai's tired. Tony Kelly wins the second round. In the third round, Tony Kelly is on his way to picking up a victory in the UFC. Former MTV cage star from Louisiana, Tony Kelly, is about to win his UFC debut. Crazy. And then Kai Kamaka hits him in the balls, right? He gets him in the groin. Tony Kelly takes a few minutes. Kai takes a few minutes. Catches his <laughs> breath. Fight resumes. Insta-takedown. <laughs> Holds Kelly down and wins. And honestly, he did not look good whatsoever in, in, in that fight. So not a great look for Kai Kamaka. Uh, you also got to realize that it was close and was a win, but he came in as a minus 225 favorite. So maybe that's why people were felt a, a little bit left down when they are backing him. But then he comes in as a minus 305 favorite against Jonathan Pierce. Now, we talked about a couple fights earlier, right, uh, with KB Bula, right? You you lose your debut, and all of a sudden you're just completely written off. And that, that's the Jonathan Pierce story, right? Yep. He gets smoked out by Joe Lozon in Boston. Mythical creature Joe Lozon in Boston. It gets knocked out by old man Joe Lozon, and right away it's like, whoa, this guy sucks. It's like this guy's got good gas tank, right? He's got good, like a good grind to him, decent enough wrestling, trains at the MMA lab, making a lot of improvements. Uh, JSP, not GSP. <laughs> I don't mind this kid, right? And he was live in that Kai Kamaka fight because Kai took that fight on short notice. You know what I mean? He was roles reversed. Tony Kelly came in, and it wasn't like it was uh, for a replacing an opponent. It was just like it was a late put together fight. Kai gasped. And then Kai took that fight against um against Jonathan Pierce on short notice. And Kai also gassed. And once he gasses, I mean he's got nothing to offer up on his back. He just gets put in a bad spot. And the ref uh, mercil mercilessly stops it. I mean, he's getting pounded on. In this spot, I think it's the same thing. I'm like, if he goes out there and gets tired, it's gonna be a, a real big issue. And TJ Brown, yeah, at his best, he is just gonna chain wrestle on you. He's gonna get you to the ground, he's gonna put a pace on you. My thing is, is that you mentioned you thought TJ Brown had the cardio advantage. That I can't fully agree with just because TJ Brown's very much one of these burns himself out going for the kill and doesn't really leave much left in the tank. That Jordan Griffin fight, he, seven takedowns in the first round, no top control, but a lot of takedowns, tires himself out, keeps putting himself in the same guillotine choke four or five times, and then eventually gets snagged up in it. I thought that was, you know, UC debut, jitters, I get it. Maybe it was an adrenaline dump. Okay, fine, we'll give him a pass. Danny Chavez fight, again, it's really low ring IQ. He waited until his lead leg was absolutely chewed to bits before even attempting his first takedown. Yeah, he just stood in front. Yeah, he stood in front of Chavez and just allowed that leg to get chewed up and then was like, shit, I need to get to the ground. And could he have? I mean, maybe, but he waited way too long. That that kind of became the problem. So now he, he's got a kind of got questionable ring IQ. He's got decent skill, but again, he's got eight pro losses. The blueprint on how to defeat him has been put out there. Cardio could be a bit of a problem. Kai Kamak has a full camp this time around. Like I can see those variables, but here's, here's the narrative that I'm going with. And then the reason why I'm going to take TJ Brown in the spot, TJ Brown was training with Bryce Mitchell, right? They're both out of Arkansas. And when you watch him fight, it kind of reminds you of like a, a poor man's version of, of Bryce Mitchell, but he's, he's hyper aggressive. You know what I mean? He's going out, he's giving up a great position to try to get some of these submissions. He's muscling these takedowns to the ground. And if you pop back up, he just jumps on you and tries to muscle you back down. It's really taxing on his body, right? I would, more than a, a, a comparison to, to Bryce Mitchell, is I would compare him to a Derek Minner, right? Whereas Derek Minner goes out there, tries to just wrestle you to the ground the first five minutes, put that submission on you, and it wasn't working for Minner. And what both guys have now done is both guys have gone to Glory MMA and Fitness with James Krause, and you saw what happened with Minner. All of a sudden, in the Charles Rosa fight, it was like, I will go and get that takedown. And instead, 
of getting out of guard instead of you know giving up a position for a for a short choke i'm just going to grind on this guy and beat him up and he did get tired but it was like new game plan carried him through the three rounds and he ends up getting the decision if tj brown goes out there with a proper game plan tries to pace himself a little bit better the takedown should be there against kai but put a grind on this guy and tire him out and then it should be at a grappling battle i think tj brown prevails in said win so i got tj brown now he is a finisher and with kai kamaka the way he got taken out against jonathan pierce where he just got so fatigued and got outclassed on the ground that he gave up the tko i can see brown either slapping on a submission or getting a tko so maybe if you're going to go brown you want to chase a bigger price tag you just take that brown inside the distance but the line is pretty appropriate as it is so i, I don't i know we're talking about props here we're not really talking about like the straight money line uh but in terms of a guy with some upside i uh, I, th I think he's definitely got some yeah, Brown inside the distance plus three thirty-five. Not too that yeah. far, not too far off off the plus five twenty-five. If you're looking to take Brown via submission, but yeah, I, I absolutely agree with you. Hopefully, that round three prop comes through for you, boy. And that's exactly what I'm going to be targeting for this week. All right, let's move on to the next fight here. And somebody we just spoke about, we got JSP Jonathan Pierce going up against Gabriel Benitez. Uh, we got minus a one. Where did it go? Minus 190 on Gabriel Benitez, plus 165 on Jonathan Pierce. Seems to be a little bit of money coming in on Jonathan Pierce, not to mention Gabriel Benitez opened up at minus 250. So there is some love coming in on Pierce. Now, the thing to note here is Gabriel Benitez going back down to 145 pounds. Uh, he spent two fights up at uh, 155 where he split those fights. Uh, one of them, I believe, was a loss to Omar Morales. And then after that, he goes out there and finishes Justin James. Now he's going back down to 145 pounds. And, you know, it... it it's funny because we had this similar situation with Tracy Cortez, where she normally fought at 125 pounds, went up to 135 for two fights, and then came back down to 125. And you had said it the day before the weigh-ins. You're like, let's see how she looks on the scales. I'm like, what are you talking about? She's She's been at 125. Of course she's going to make weight. And what happens? She misses weight by 0.5 fucking pounds. So that's why I'm going to be waiting out on Gabriel Benitez this week and see how he looks on the scales first before we truly go out there and say, okay, you know, he should go out there and, uh, you know, get his game plan going. Now, Cortez did end up getting the victory, luckily enough for her, but it might be a closer fight here with Jonathan Pierce and Gabriel Benitez, considering I believe that their skill level is much closer than we had with Cortez and Keisha a couple weeks ago. Now, Gabriel, great southpaw, has a great left kick for up the middle, is able to really torch the body of his opponents, and it's really helped him out in a lot of his wins, but... It seems earlier in his career, it seems like uh, the wrestlers were the ones that were really giving it up and uh, really giving him uh, some troubles. You had uh, Enrique Barzola uh, giving, him, uh, giving him, I think, six or seven takedowns. And even nice, uh, Clay yeah. Collard. Yeah, Clay Collard, six or seven takedowns as well. So it was just like... It, how well has he really acclimated with his with his grappling and his wrestling? You know, we we know he's an AKA guy. You guys have seen the pictures of them floating around with him training with Umar Nurmagomedov and and the rest of those Dagestani guys from the AKA side of things. But how does that translate into the UFC? Now, I, I still ultimately am going to end up going with Gabriel Benitez here, not with the most level of confidence, as I do think he has a sharper striking. Uh, Jonathan Pierce is very hittable, and I, that is a little bit too much of a concern for me. But I, I do think that Pierce has shaken off that rust that he had in that first fight against Joe Lozon, right? Like, like you talked about it, going into your first fight against a UFC legend in his backyard. And not to mention, it, I, I paid particularly close attention to this. Uh, the walkout song that Jonathan Pierce uh, chose that night was a Post Malone song. And the, one of the first things that Post Malone says in the song, he goes, it goes, I've been waiting such a long time. And you can see that he was just so happy to finally make it to the UFC. He was just taking it in, whether it was booze, whether it was cheers, he didn't really give a fuck. He's like, I fucking made it. 
And then he has to go in there and fight a, a savage like Joe Lozon, who, albeit is closer, probably 40 years old at that point in time, still had the, the drive to go out there and perform in front of his hometown fans. And that's exactly why I believe he was able to get the victory that night, not to mention that beautiful combination he landed on the feet to eventually plop uh, Pierce on his ass. But I think... The longer this stays in the striking realm, I think Pierce uh, uh, will start to get touched up by Benitez. My concern is if Pierce starts to mix in that that wrestling and start to take Benitez down, and if Benitez truly will struggle down there. I'll give Benitez the benefit of the doubt in terms of thinking that he should have worked on that. He should obviously know that that will be Pierce's approach here. Um, but at minus 190, I'm not laying that type of line. So the way that I see this going is I do think this fight gets stretched out. I do think that this is one that uh, a lot of people are buying into the, the quick finishes in the last fights thinking that these guys aren't decision fighters. I know that they have durability. I know that they can go long, and I think they can take this to a decision. So I do like the fight starts round three at minus 105. I think that's a great line, as a lot of people are thinking that both of these guys have issues with the durability. And then ultimately, I'll be going with... um. Benitez win by decision at uh, plus three or five. I'm seeing a lot of people saying that Benitez is KO or bust in this situation. I don't think so. We've seen him have competitive striking matchups in the past, and I think that this could play out the same way. Uh, but if I were to actually put serious money on this fight, I'd actually go with I'd go with your approach, which is taking the overs and taking the fight starts round two minus two twenty five. I don't think that's bad either. But even fight starts round three to get it at even money, I think is a bit of a gift here. And I think people are kind of being blinded by the past couple fights of both guys here so that's why like i am going to go on the benitez side how are you seeing this one yeah again this is another hard fight to gauge right with gabriel benitez we know what we're getting out of him is he's a solid gatekeeper kind of guy top fringe top 15 but you go out there and you beat gabriel benitez you've got some serious upside you know you're a decent prospect in the division you can definitely hold your own if you lose to him chances are you're not going to have a contract with the company for very long the wins over justin james humberto band and i oh, actually if you start from the bottom uh, Humberto Morrison or Humberto Brown, he's cut. Clay Collard, even though he's my boy, he is cut. Sam Cecilia fights in Bellator, he's cut. Jason Knight's cut. Humberto Bandanai's cut. Justin James has got a fight coming up, but he's 0-3 in the UFC, and if he loses Probably that one, surely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. I mean, I, I know who you, who you and I are betting on. Um, things things not looking good. So, again, the level of guys that he's beating, very low. But when you look at the losses, Omar Morales, Sodik Youssef, Enrique Barzola, Andre Feely, it's like, yeah, all guys that are more than capable of holding their own and kind of fighting those that top 15, top 10 kind of range at best. So, again, he's a gatekeeper. He holds down a job in the UFC. If you're not ready for this level, he's going to take advantage. If you are legit, chances are you'll be able to, you'll be able to come out positive on the other side. But Jonathan Pierce, so it's like, well, how, how good is he? Coming to the UFC, his regional show career looked okay. You saw him on Contender Series. And we talked about it earlier. You know, he's a wrestling grinding type guy. He can get those takedowns. When he gets these takedowns, he puts a pace on you. He does have good cardio. You saw that in Contender Series. The Lozon fight, obviously, he wasn't able to showcase it. And then against Kai Kamaka, I mean, he just, he eventually takes him down. I think he gets four or five takedowns in that fight and then just puts a pace on him, breaks him down, gets a TKO. Being trained out of the MMA lab with John Crouch and just so many good training partners in, in that gym, no doubt he's going to be making improvements. The question is, can he get this fight to the ground? If it stays standing, it's Gabriel Benitez. Javier Mendez has gone on record multiple times to say, this is the hardest kicker I've ever worked with. Guys that stay at range with him generally get kicked up. I know he did bust up his own shit against Omar Morales, which caused him to get tentative on it. But you saw in the Justin James fight where, like, if your striking's not up to snuff, he is going to capitalize and take advantage. I think him in a, in a striking battle versus Jonathan Pierce is Gabriel Benitez all day. It's whether this fight is going to hit the ground. It's whether Pierce is able to force it to the ground. Now, the thing with Benitez is he shows, like, a 71% takedown defense, but it's skewed. Because nine takedowns against Barzola, 
and six takedowns against Clay Collard. By the way, it was five years ago. Yeah. Th those two fights, they, they ruined the statistic, right? In all of his other fights, not that anybody's really trying to wrestle him, but this is a guy that's been in camp with Habib Nurmagomedov for six years. You know, Islam Makachev, uh, Duran Wynn, Daniel Cormier, Luke Rockle, Josh Thompson. Like, the, the guys know how to wrestle, right? And Sean Bunch, you know, like, all these guys are in the gym all the time. They're, they're working hard. I think Benitez's wrestling is good enough that he's be able to stuff the few shots when he's striking exchanges. Now, the last time he was taken down was 2017, four years ago, and it's the Jason Knight fight. If you rewatch that one, dude, he kicks the shit out of Jason Knight pillar to post. Jason Knight actually bites him in the first round, loses a point. <laughs> but it, it's like it's all Benitez. He stuffs the takedowns, and he busts him up. Now, Jason Knight's a bit of a wild striker, bare knuckle boxing guy, and you know, he, he's a he's an antsy, young, hard go-getter, get in your face. But without the takedowns, he was rendered pretty neutral. And, and I think Jonathan Pierce runs the same risk. If he doesn't get this fight to the ground, he's going to get pieced up. But I wouldn't completely write off his chances of getting the takedown. It's that Benitez has had, what, eight or nine fights in the UFC. He's fought some decent guys. His wins are low level, like we talked about. The losses are to a decent level. At least you know what you're getting. Whereas Pierce could have a higher upside. Pierce could be heading in the right direction. But a win over Kai Kamaka... Who, whom we're not picking in this spot either and barely squeaked a win in his UFC debut. It's, that's not super high quality. A loss to Lozon in Boston, a 30-fight UFC veteran, like what the hell? Uh, but, but that version of Lozon, like, it does give you a lot more question marks. So I'm going to leave this one for right now to pass. For I, I'm going to wait to the weigh-ins like you mentioned. If Benitez comes on the scales, makes 45 or 46, gets a one-pound allowance, looks shredded up, looks good, looks like he's got energy. He's going to be too big. He is going to stuff those takedowns, and he's going to box up Jonathan Pierce. I don't necessarily like that over, though, is that I think he could catch Pierce. Um, but in, in, in the same regard, you know, this, this is a coin flip fight. It's close. If you want to label it a dog or pass and you take that shot on Pierce, I'm looking to either just pass, wait to see weigh-ins, and see if I can not get a, a last-minute read on it. All right. Uh, I don't blame you for that one. This is definitely one that you guys are going to want to tune into the Ultimate Wayne Show to see what Gabriel Benitez looks like and what we're able to take away from it. All right, let's move on to the prelim headliner here. We got Rana Marcos going up against UFC newcomer Luana Pinheiro. She is the girlfriend of one Matias Nicolau who fought uh, or just made his return to the UFC a couple months ago. Um, interesting fight, right? We got uh, Pinheiro coming in, making her debut. Similar situation to Gloria DePaula a couple months ago. And we saw what happened with her in terms of what Jin Fry was able to bring to the table. You put her up against a, a veteran of the sport and they they fall flat on their face. So it's a similar situation here where you got a, you know, a middling Randa Marcos, literally a 500 fighter Randa Marcos. If she loses this fight, she'll be 10 and 11, which is obviously not a great look um but she's been in the cage with the who's who right like th just think about the 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 level of competition she's faced since she's been in the ufc i remember her back i, I used i worked at uh work or work rec 2.0 uh in ottawa when she fought uh ashley nichols and since then she's just obviously she had that one loss to uh she began Kara Kirsch right after that. Lots of Justin Kish had one more fight for PFC and then got onto the Ultimate Fighter. But just look at these names: Tisha Torres, Felice Herrick, Rose Namajunas, Jessica Penne, Carolina Kavalkovich, Courtney Casey, Carla Esparza, Alexa Grasso, Juliana Lima, uh, Nina Nunes, Marina Rodriguez, Angela Hill, Claudia Gadelia, Ashley Yoder, Amanda Hebus, Mackenzie Dern, Kanaka Murata. Is that not like? pretty much everybody in the lower weight classes for the women's like she's fought everybody but unfortunately for her she's on a three-fight losing streak right now but not the worst names right amanda hebas obviously we know she's very highly touted mackenzie dern 
probably the worst fight IQ we've ever seen from Ronda Marcos <laughs> saying the whole week, I'm not going to engage in the grappling. And that's literally the first thing she does once Mackenzie Dern flops to her back. And then we get the Kanaka Murata fight, who, you know, obviously it was her UFC debut, but she has a very solid wrestling background and she was able to show it off in that fight. Now here with Pinheiro, you're having a fighter that's on a six-fight winning streak, all first-round knockouts, and that gives me some questions about what this girl's cardio looks like. She's gone to a decision twice in her career, one in her first-ever fight, who I believe that girl that she ended up fighting that night and beating ended up going 0-4 and just quit MMA all in all. And then the girl she ended up losing to via decision uh, ended up going four and four in her career and just ended up not doing MMA anymore either. So we know the regional Brazilian scene is very sketchy. So she can go out there and absolutely toast these girls and then come to the UFC with a great record. But we got to give her some credit for that Frausto knockout that she had on the contender series. You know, Frausto was very experienced by that point in time. Had 14 fights, was eight and six at the time. Uh, sister of Zoila Frausto as well, if I'm not mistaken. Yep. But Still, the level of competition, not what she's going to be fighting in the UFC. Let's be honest. Ronda Marcos is notoriously durable. You know, she's only been finished twice, I believe, in the UFC from Courtney Casey via Armbaro over five years ago or six years ago. And then obviously the most recent one with Mackenzie Dern via Armbar as well. But she does a really good job of staying out of bad positions other than that Mackenzie Dern fight. You know, she was able to survive, I believe, seven minutes on the ground with Amanda Hibas, who's a pretty solid jiu-jitsu player in herself. So she does have those uh, things that she's working on. Speaking of things that she's working on, she's moving to training camp down to Travis Luter's gym, the Michael Jordan of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. She's <laughs> gone down there and, uh, you know, really starting to work on her game and really trying to shore up those jiu-jitsu deficiencies that she has in her game. Because you even remember from her, from the, like, the regional scene, what was her game plan? It was take opponents down you know, smother them, look for a submission, look for ground and pound. But then once she started taking those levels up in competition, it wasn't working out as much for her. Um, and that's exactly the, the the realization it seems like she's come to. Now, I don't know if it's because of the COVID lockdown and restrictions that we're having up here in, in Ontario or even in Michigan. I'm not sure what it's like to, over there, but she went over to Texas. She's training with Travis Lewis Gym now. It's, it's got to mean something in terms of she knows that this is her last chance. This is probably her pink slip fight. If she loses this one, she's probably out of the UFC. But she has a fighter in Luana Pinero who I have a lot of question marks about still, right? She looks great on the surface. You know, she seems like a girl that the UFC could truly market. She has the finishing ability as she's shown in her last six fights. But what happens when this fight goes into rounds two and three? What's going to happen? Like, does Ronda Marcos's durability come through for her? Does she win with her herky-jerky style of her, of her striking? It, it's not the most technically correct, but it does the job. She's able to, like, clinch up with her opponents, push them up against the cage, make it a dirty grinding fight. And Pinero's a brown belt, but I believe that Ronda Marcos should be safe on the ground here. Is she going to decide to take this to the ground and try to, you know, play with her there? Maybe not the best thing to do in the first round when Pinero is fresh and ready to go, but let the fight Play, lay on her a little bit more and then start to take her into deeper waters and try to ground her out. That's the type of fighter that I think that Ronda Marcos is. And I think you can't overlook the amount of experience and stuff that she's been through in the UFC and not think she's going to be able to bring that here in this fight against Pinheiro. So you're not going to catch me with my money on the UFC newcomer Pinheiro in this fight. She may look great. She may go on to do great things in this UFC division, but given everything that we know up until this point, I'm not the biggest on the Pinheiro train. So I am going to go with Marcos, not with the utmost confidence and not just because she's Canadian as some people might end up throwing at me, but I think she has a decent shot to pull off the upset here. Uh, we're looking at the plus 140 for Marcos, but in terms of her win condition, it's obviously going to be a decision, right? She's not really a finisher. I think the last time she finished somebody was Angela Hill via armbar, but uh, Rada Marcos... Dope. <laughs> Pretty dope, right? It's a nice win. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, Marcos by decision, plus 235. 
I don't think that's a bad line. How are you seeing this one? Yeah, I'm going to agree. I don't think Marcos by decision line is, is terrible. The fight to go the distance is minus 185, which Sorry, is not one last nearly... thing, one last thing, Cody. Uh, yeah. I, I did forget, fail to mention, you just said that, yeah, the over two and a half minus 220, I think that's very poorly priced because of Pinero's regional scene record. And yeah, I absolutely, absolutely agree. Fight goes to decision and over two and a half and minus 220, I think is a steal of a line. Continue. Sorry. Yeah, and with Pinero, it's like, you know what, I honestly, and these are lessons I learn all the time, so I can't really say lesson learned, but just from last week, right? Last week, there was Zhu Rong versus Kazulo Vargas. And yep. on one hand, you have Zhu Rong, who it's all regional show career tape. It's all very low level. He's beaten a low level of opposition. He's not ready for the bright lights. And Kazulo Vargas has no real intangibles, you know? He just was, was the older, more seasoned, tougher guy and went out there and gave him a humbling experience. Luana Panero, she looks like she's got some legitimate skills. It's not very often that you see 115-pound fighters scoring first-round knockouts. And her, her, I mean, she seems to have some legitimate power in her hands. Trains on American Top Team, as you mentioned, a boyfriend there as well. No doubt that she's making large improvements, but it's troubling that she wins a decision in her pro debut, and then every other win that she's had has been first-round finishes, whether they're five TKOs, two submissions. Uh, they're all happening in the first round. The one time that she got extended outside of that is when she loses a split decision. And that fight's only realistically three or four years ago. Ronda Marcos was losing to Rose Namajunas on The Ultimate Fighter back in 2014. She's fought a who's who. She's fought all the best girls, like you mentioned. But she's just got that, that seasoned uh, experience. Has she made some bad decisions in the past? Yeah, absolutely. Does she seem like a half-what lost fighter looking for something? Most definitely. You mentioned, because, yeah, we've had the privilege of watching Ronda Marcos for a long time. But um, back when I knew her, she trained at maximum um, yeah. in Windsor. Reno. Yeah, she was a Reno Bel Castro trained fighter, TJ Laramie's camp, Kyle Prepolek, the whole cast of, of characters down there. Uh, and she just up and bails and goes to Michigan top team, right? Is like, sorry, you know, I got to train better, a better level. And it all happened before the Justine Keish fight in RFA, whereas her, a new manager was like, oh, I can get you this fight in RFA, but you should leave Reno. You should leave Windsor and come to Michigan. So she does. And then she fought a couple times at a Michigan top team, left, and went to TriStar. Fought for a couple fights at a TriStar, left, went back to Michigan Top Team. Now she's left Michigan Top Team and she's out in Texas. Like I'm sure it probably is because of restrictions. Don't get me wrong. You need to get grappling in. You need to get hard training in. And maybe maybe the camps in Michigan are, are, are not open and they don't have the same amount of bodies. Like Texas and Florida is certainly where you want to be. But with Ronda Marcos, like it's just kind of been you know one spot to another. I don't know that she's got one steady coach that's been with her trying to give her advice. It's more so just like she's she's leading her own charge. And it worked for a long time. She's never won back-to-back -back fights in the UFC. She's never lost back-to-back -back fights yeah. in the UFC. And then all of a sudden she did. And mind you, it's always good level of competition, but um, she finally broke that streak when she lost to Ribas Dern and, and Murata consecutively. Now, Kanaka Murata is a wrestling <laughs> beast. I mean, I really like this girl. I like her for sure. So Kenzie Dern asked for days. But beyond that, is, re is really improving and has the best jiu-jitsu in the division. Amanda Rebus, people will say she's a bust. Still young, still improving. Very solid fighter in the division. Claude Gedalia, former title challenger. Amanda Nunez, you know, basically could have been title challenger, but a top three, top five girl in the division. Uh, Marina Rodriguez is still a fucking beast. She fought her to a draw. Well, Alexa Grosso, Courtney Casey, Carolina Kovalkiewicz, Jessica Penny, All those girls have headlined UFC cards. She doesn't lose to average run-of-the-mill fighters. Very much she's kind of like we talked about, you know, a, a gatekeeper, a, a Gabriel Benitez. Like, she's there to guard the gate. Murata's badass. Dern's badass. Rivas is badass. They all pass the test. 
Panero? Is Panero badass? I don't know. I'll find out on Saturday yeah. if she can beat Ronda Marcos. But again, bringing it back to the example of Zurong versus Vargas, I knew Vargas was just, he was he was tough. You know, he went three rounds against Andrade. He got disqualified in his last fight, so it wasn't like it was a he got KO'd or submitted. He had actually never been finished, or he had been finished by uh, by Caceres, the only guy to beat Usman. So you have a pass there. It's like that durability, that two fights in the UFC, that that experience, that 30 versus 21 years old, that all matters, man. And I think Ronda Marcos has that here. She's made the walk 20-plus times. She's fought. This is this is a uh, this is probably the weakest opponent she's fought on paper since a- Ashley Otter, I guess, who she beat. Yeah. Uh, Juliana Lima, who she beat. Justin Jones Leibarter, who she beat. You know, maybe Courtney Casey. This is like the lowest level, and that even that fight's five years ago, right? Marcos has got to know. I'm done here. I got a ten and ten record. I'm on a three fight losing streak. As nice as it is the UFC to shake my hand and give me one last fight. It's do or die, baby. It's time to do it. And, and I think that she's got one left in her. So I would say that uh, it's dog or pass. That's the dog is to go with Marcos. And Marcos seems like a grinding type fighter. So Panero's only pro loss. She lost by a split decision. You have to take her into deeper waters, tire out, grinder. Marcos says you got to bring a lunch pail with her and get down to business. But I think she's got the skills to do it. I was actually expecting you to be on the other side here with Pinero, but you you nailed all the points, man. Like Pinero could absolutely go out there and starch Marcos, but given the data that we have and everything that we know, and you know similar fighters coming into similar situations and how it's played out in the past, it's hard to overlook Ronda Marcos here. Say what you want about her three fight losing streak, poor fight IQ in that Mackenzie Dern fight, but man, like she's a scrapper, she's durable, and she should be able to push Pinero here, and we should be able to see what Pinero is truly made of the farther this fight goes. All right. Let's move on to the main card here. That is the prelims. Now we're going to get into the main card. I do want to remind you guys, make sure you guys hit that like, hit that subscribe. We're here every 8 p.m. Thursday nights for you guys propping you up. Uh, and obviously Friday nights, the ultimate weigh-in show, 9 p.m. Eastern. A different cast of guys every single week, but really looking forward to breaking down the fights from you guys uh, with the final thoughts and weigh-ins in mind. All right, let's get into the main card here. The first one fight, I still don't understand why the fuck this fight's on the main card, but let's get it over with. We got Poliana Battaglio against Luana Carolina. I believe this was actually supposed to be Poliana Battaglio versus somebody else, Mara Bueno Silva. Unfortunately, Silva pulls out and in steps Luana Dread uh, Carolina. Now, you know, Poliana Battaglio probably has a better striking here, you know, in terms of power and ability to put her opponents away. Carolina seems like that fighter, like when she's at her best, we get that uh, Priscilla Cachoeira type performance where she's on the outside, pretty much just beating her up from distance, out-voluming her, putting in the pace on her. And then it was interesting to see her give up that knee bar loss to Ariana Carnelosi, or uh, sorry, Ariane uh, Lipsky. And it was interesting that the line was as close as it was. A lot of people are giving up on Lipsky, you know, the violence queen coming over from KSW, and she loses a couple fights, and all of a sudden she's almost out of pick them against a girl like Luana Carolina. Luckily, she was able to pull off her knee bar victory there, so she was able to get her hand raised. But uh, this fight, it, you know, I don't agree with the line, first and foremost, minus 260. I think that's a little bit way too much chalk on a fighter like Poliana Battaglio, but she should still go out there and outstrike and outwork this girl in Luana Carolina. Um, Questionable cardio on Battaglio a little bit, but I do think her uh, heavy-handed style is going to be the, the 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 detriment to Luana Carolina actually getting her hand raised here. So I do like Battaglio. I think she'll go out there and outstrike uh, Carolina. Carolina might throw a couple more strikes for, for, than her. She might put more volume on her, but I think the bigger and uh, more impactful shots are going to come from Battaglio, and I think that's ultimately what the judges are going to see. So I like Battaglio uh, by decision, which is... 
uh, minus 120, but I wouldn't mind a little bit of a sprinkle on Botelio by TKO at plus 650 as she does have some heater in her hands. And Carolina, I don't think, you know, definitely she's very, very hittable, which is not a good sign, especially when you're going up against a heavy hitter like Botelio here. Uh, so plus 650, I don't think it's a bad spot, but if you're putting a gun to my head, I think minus 120 on the decision line for Botelio is probably the best way to go. Do you think Carolina has a better shot of winning this? How do you see this one going? Okay, so we're actually same, same. But different. So I got Paulina Matello, right? I okay. like the Paulina Matello decision. But whereas you looked at that TKO, I looked at the submission. Now, mind you, Paulina Matello doesn't really have submissions. So that's why you're getting a plus 580 line on that Matello by submission. But we, we talk about it often. It's not necessarily that just because they haven't done it or haven't done it in a while that they can't do it. It's all about how certain matchups come to be. With Luana Carolina, I mean, she's tall, she's lanky, she's rangy, and she has great output. We all know that about her. Contender Series fight. She actually puts a, a great pace on, uses that rank, that 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 length, 85 significant strikes landed over 15. The fight with Cachoeira, 111 strikes and a knockdown. It's a it's a great performance. Lipsky, we're remembering KSW, she's the former champion. The, the violence queen is a Muay Thai fighter. Okay. They line up. This is striker versus striker. This is as striker versus striker as it gets. Prior to the fight, and I'm not sure if you've seen it. I felt like I talked to you about it, but maybe not. But prior to the fight, Luana Carolina. The strength and conditioning coach releases tape of her training, and it's like she's got no physical strength. She can't do a push up. Like she's the like push ups. Yeah. yeah, the push ups. She's like <laughs> sitting there, like crooked, with like her back, like going halfway down. And it was like, oh shit. Yeah. Now, as far as Muay Thai goes, as far as throwing lots of volume, she can do that. But the second Lipsky clinched up with her, tossed her to the ground, she just fed her the knee like she had never gone to yeah. Jiu-Jitsu before, and just walked into the most awkwardly set up knee bar that you'll see this year or i guess it happened last year <clears throat> but still very very awkward setup to it now lipsky isn't known for her ground game it's the fact that luana carolina seemed out of it of sorts and seeing seeing her how that 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 weakness and i think like an aggressive strong fighter will be able to go out there and have their way so in one aspect i agree with you pauliana batello is the heavier striker so even though carolina should have the volume batello lends the harder shots maybe that gets the job done but you can't rely on these shitty judges week in and week out to yeah. give you a proper decision when they might just score a volume. So Paulina goes out there and scores the takedown. Now, as much as you're saying shit, man, I mean, submission, takedown, she, she's actually three for three for takedowns in the UFC. She's only actually attempted three takedowns, but she got all three down. She took down Pearl Gonzalez, and she had two takedowns against Laura Mueller. It, yeah, she likes to stay standing. Yeah, she likes to work that body kick like the Suri Kondo fight. Yeah, she, she is a Nova Union trained aggressive striker, but their ability to score takedowns is there. Once she gets the fight to the ground, ground and pound, soften her up, but Carolina might just give you the submission again. So the play would be Patello. We're chasing props here. We're trying to get a, a better price. It's a prop-based show. I would say that the smart prop would be Patello by decision, but if you're looking for like one of these six-to-one little punt-type plays, I know you're going TKO. I thought submission was live because of the level of grappling that Luana Carolina's at, which is very low. I don't blame you. It's I think inside the distance is a good line regardless. So it, it almost comes down to what you know, pick your poison for, but tell you which side she's going to be going with, whether she wants to ground and pound or snatch up a submission victory here. So yeah. I'm glad that we're able to find some value on this fight. Hopefully it comes to fruition for the people listening. Uh, but it's definitely the fight that I think most people are just like, ah, 
Let's just go to the washroom. Eh, let's go to the backyard, whatever the fuck it is, right? All right, let's the move back, on to the backyard. We, <laughs> the back, we know, you know it goes I mean. down in the backyard. Yeah, fuck yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's uh let's get the uh the next fight underway. We got Marab Davalashvili going up against Cody Stamen. And this is one of the more intriguing fights for me because I've been wanting to see Marab start taking these steps up in competition, right? This is where we truly get to see what he's been made of. But you know, you can't really knock the level of competition that he's had in the past, right? Like that that Ricky Simone fight is starting to look a lot better now, even though he ended up losing that fight. He performed very, very well in that fight. He probably would have won that fight had it gone to a decision like it should have, in my opinion. But uh you know, you got Ricky Simone on your record. You got Brad Cotone, who's no longer in the UFC. The Casey Kenny win, very solid win for him there. Even the John Dodson win. Say what you want about John Dodson in 2020. But my question mark was, I, I even sprinkled a little bit on John Dodson via KO that night because I didn't really believe in Marab's striking ability. And I thought that if John Dodson was able to keep this fight vertical, he would be able to land a big enough bomb on him and put his lights up. But Marab has a hell of a fucking chin and he has a hell of a fucking motor. And I think that's going to take him very, very far in this sport. Not to mention he averages close to eight takedowns a fight, but that just lets you know, right? Like he lets these guys back up or he just doesn't do the best job in terms of holding these guys down. He's just always working. And more often than not, that leaves an opening for these guys to get back to their feet. But it almost reminds me of Cain Velasquez during his run, right? He wasn't the greatest fighter, like in terms of like keeping a guy down. So he's always able to get these guys, you know, back down as soon as, as, soon as they get back to their feet. But it almost seems like that's more exhausting than just holding a guy down, right? For the opponent that I'm talking about, these opponents just have to keep getting back up three, four, five times around. And it takes so much energy to just get back to your feet and then get this guy clamping back onto you just to get dragged back to the ground. And that's kind of why Marab Devashvili has been so successful in his approach because he just wears on guys so much. And I'm not sure if Cody Stamen is going to be able to, you know, I don't know if his technical wrestling will be able to out-trump the uh, the Marab Devashvili way of fighting. And I always thought a more technical guy was going to give Marab Devashvili problems. But, like, Ricky Simone's a great wrestler. Got ragdolled. Um... Brad Katona, decent wrestler. I know Canadian wrestler. Who say what you want about Canadian wrestlers? Still got ragdolled. Uh, and even Casey Kenny, I thought one of the best scramblers in the UFC. I thought if anybody was going to get Marab's number, it was going to be Casey. And no difference there. Marab Devalishvili keeps getting it done. Now I think Cody Simmons is probably one of the best technical wrestlers out of that bunch. But I still think he's going to have trouble here with Marab Devalishvili's pace, pressure. You know, not letting you breathe, staying in your face, you know, throwing you to the ground, getting back up, throwing you back to the ground, whatever it is. Rob's motor is just second to none in this division. We don't have any fighter that can resemble this type of approach. There's literally nobody. So at a certain point, it's going to catch up to him. I don't think it's the Cody fight. I think this one he's actually going to be able to get. And the last thing I'll say about this, it, Marab reminded me of like Billy Quarantillo in the sense that Billy had that like Homer Simpson approach where he just kept getting whooped on and then would just come back later in the fight and just get the win. Uh, in the sense of that, I thought the once he fought a really technical, good fighter, he's going to end up losing just like he did against Gavin Tucker. And I thought this, you know, I thought Cody Stamen was going to be the Gavin Tucker in this situation, but I just don't see it after running the tape. I think that Marab is going to get the better of him pretty much everywhere it goes. I think the best shot Cody has to win the fight is if it's like a first round knockout, flash KO or something like that. But when's the last time you've seen Cody Stamen knock somebody up, right? That's the other question mark here. So, I'm expecting to go, this to go to a decision. I'm expecting Marab to be a step ahead pretty much at all times. And I think that he gets the decision victory here. I believe the line on Marab to win by decision is minus 135. That's accurate, especially considering that he's a minus 255 favorite here. Line on the money line seems a little bit wide, but after you run the tape, you kind of understand why. But you can still go with the decision line, which I think is accurately priced. And I think you can still get some good value on that. Cody, 
how are you seeing this one? Yeah, I mean, it's hard to bet against Murad Vashvili because he's just going to go out there with that that reckless, ruthless game plan. Just take you down repeatedly. Rinse, repeat. Rinse and repeat. If he doesn't tire, then you're going to have a very tough night on your hands. And he's shown like he's got pretty good cardio. The question is what happens when he runs into a better wrestler. Yeah, I think that's the million-dollar question everyone's asking. He's had his way against all these guys. And you mentioned some good wrestlers in the mix. Frankie Science wrestled out of Arizona collegiately, 11 takedowns. Um, Brad Katona can wrestle a little bit, 5. Casey Kinney, 12. Gustavo Lopez, who apparently can wrestle 13. It's like, man, these are these are huge numbers. But I, I keep going to the John Dodson fight. The John Dodson fight, he struggles mightily for the takedowns. In fact, he goes 2 for 20 on takedown attempts. So lots of takedown attempts, but not a whole lot of results. And as a result, you know, John Dodson starts fighting with his hands low and you know, worrying about the, the takedown. And it allows Marab Dabashvili to actually outstrike him, you know, open up with his hands, hurt him a little bit, and uh, and eventually take that decision. But... Again, it just gives you that idea. You, you nailed it. A more technical fighter is eventually going to beat this guy. Now, the Frankie Simons fight gets raw. Like, how do, you, how do you take a guy down 11 times but then lose the fight? It makes no sense because he gets outstruck, right? So, again, it comes back to bad judging. We assume that the guy with getting all the takedowns is going to win. We assume the guy with top control is going to win. But Murad Vaj really is low output. Like, he doesn't have a whole lot of striking arsenal in terms of standing. But when he gets these guys to the ground, there's not much top control. Like, they pop up. That's why you take a guy down 12 times because yeah. because he gets up four times in every round. That, that in itself is going to be extremely difficult, I believe. It's like you can't progressively go forward with this game plan of just taking these guys down and then they're popping back up. They're outstriking you. You're taking them down because eventually a bad judge is going to see it the other way. Happened in the Frankie Science fight and it could theoretically happen again here too. When I think of Cody Stamen, I mean, he's a good wrestler. He's another guy that was out of Michigan top team, but he's now an extreme couture now, making a lot of improvements, can wrestle. Has fought in good guys like Al Jermaine Sterling, Jimmy Rivera, you know, has generally given a good account of himself. But if he comes out there and is able to counter us a little bit, even so, does get taken down, but just like everybody else, get back up. It's what he does in that in-between. It's what he does when he is standing that might be able to come out here and get the victory. But uh, but fuck, man, again, tape studying, like you said, he he himself is low output as well. He doesn't have a defining submission game. He doesn't have a defining knockout power. So when he wins, it's these close fights, and that's how he'd win this one, split decision, you know? He's going to have to keep it close, keep it competitive, and have it go to the scorecards. But I do consider him a live underdog. I just think this thing's going in the distance. If you take Stamen, you probably juice it and go Stamen by decision. If you take Rob Devashvili, you juice it and you take that Rob Devashvili by decision. I like the fight just to go the distance, but that's three to one, you know? That's going to be, that's a, that's a prop parlay piece. And again, you never really like to go down that road. Uh, but again, I mean, they're both they're both good guys. They're both wrestlers. They're both. I, I just think Devosh really is, is that ability to just that relentless pressure. Like, is Stamen going to get tired? Is Stamen going to eventually get frustrated? Or are the judges just going to count all these takedowns? Like, all great questions. The last thing is Paul Shaughnessy mentioned this, and it got me thinking: is that you know, Marab Devosh is always in camp with Aljamain Sterling, right? Sterling is actually a former opponent. Cody Stamen could have been a big help, but Sterling just got surgery. He's out like seven months. Yep. You know, now that's a body that you don't have there, right? They, they just watched their teammate, Chris Wyman, snap his leg in half over the weekend. Like, you know what I mean? Like, the vibe might not quite be there. He might not be in great at the shape that we're expecting him to be in. And he didn't look great in the Dodson fight. He actually got outstruck in the second round against John Dodson. Didn't lose the round on any of the judges' scorecards. But you rewatch it, it's just like someone's going to expose him eventually. And you're, you're right. Maybe, maybe it's not Cody Stamen, but I think Cody Stamen's live in that spot at least. So the prop that I like spike go the distance. That's the coward's way out. It's three to one, but I do like that play. And I think uh, you're not far off. If you're taking Bosch take that minus 130, take it by decision. If you are going Stamen, 
again, you know, like he, he's probably going to take this one by decision, if anything, right? So uh, I, th I think this thing's going 15. The official play, I don't know, gun to my head. I'm going to take the dog. I'm going to go to Cody Stamen, but this kid want to be one of those people on Twitter telling me, ha-ha, I told you so, yeah. uh, you know, 15 yeah. minutes after the bell rings because he's been ridden like a little pony out there and taken down 15 times. But I, I think because of the way that the line's priced, um, it's Javash Vili. If I put him on one of my parlays, he'd be my apple pie shitter. I just, that's the feeling I'm getting. That's why you parlayed the over two and a half instead of picking. Hell yeah. yeah. Hell yeah, buddy. Hell yeah. I know you like going with the fighters strictly, but I do like throwing the, the over-unders in there every now and then. The last thing I'll say about this matchup is Cody Stamen is probably one of the better uh, striking wrestlers out there in terms of he kind of adopted that Darren Crookshank style, like that karate type of style. I believe they were training partners in the past up there in Michigan. So maybe that's something that he's going to try to look to kind of capitalize with. But again, low output, so it gives you a little bit of cause, cause for concern. Uh, but yeah, very interesting. We should definitely find out a lot about Marab Devalishvili this weekend and how he fares in this fight. All right, let's move on to the next fight. A fight that I'm a lot more confident in. We got Sean Strickland going up against Christoph Jotko. Uh, Sean Strickland, obviously, he had that quick run where he had like two fights in two rounds or two weeks. Uh, first and foremost, makes that return after, uh, I believe, a motorcycle accident. Uh, comes in against Jack Marshman and absolutely torches him. Uh, Jack Marshman. The guy has a chin on him for days. Probably one of the best moments of the COVID era was Sean Strickland just yelling at him throughout the fight, like, go down, Jack. Go down, Jack. Why don't you go down? And then even like the last 10 seconds of the fight, we got 10 seconds. I'm going to give you a chance to win. Like, if that's not a spit in the face to your opponent, like, <laughs> God, after that, after that, yeah. I love Sean Strickland. The guy is an absolute beast. And then after, uh, obviously, two weeks after that, goes out there and fights Brendan Allen at a 190-pound catchweight and torches him as well, too. And we, we see, like... The, the thing that made Sean Strickland so great before his uh, before his little bit of a layoff. I mean, even before that loss that he took to Zaleski Dos Santos, right? That was one of those weird spinning hook kicks where he thought he had his hand high enough to block the kick, but the kick still sneaks in just to the back of the head and drops Sean Strickland, and then he ends up losing that way. But I think a lot of people are reading a little bit too much into that, saying that the guy's chinny and, you know, he can't take a punch or anything like that. But literally the only finish on his record. So can you really, you know, say that uh, truthfully about him? Uh, I don't think so. I think Sean Strickland is definitely one of the more skilled fighters in this division. Very good striking game. Uses the range very well. Questionable striking defense at times, but does good does a good enough job in terms of rolling up punches and getting out of the way of big punches. But he does have a brown belt in jiu-jitsu under his sleeve too that he can definitely bring out if it's required. And I think that Jotko, for him to win this fight, he's probably have to going to go that way that... Um, he took the Alan Abadowski fight, which was get the fight to the ground and try to grind this fight out. But I just don't see him having that success here, right? You're talking about uh, Sean Strickland, who has very good takedown defense, and not to mention that uh, brown belt in jiu-jitsu, like I said. Uh, the, the actual number in terms of takedown defense, 81% takedown defense for Sean Strickland compared to the 35% takedown accuracy of uh, Christoph Jotko. So we know Jotko is a striker, right? He's, he might even have the speed advantage here, which is interesting, but I don't think that's going to cut it for him here against Strickland, who's just going to be able to piece him up. I'll give Jotko the benefit of the doubt. I think that he'll be able to survive all 15 minutes, but I think the majority of those 15 minutes is going to be Sean Strickland absolutely molly whopping this guy on the feet. If he wants to take it to the ground, I think Strickland has the advantage on the ground too. The guy's a big dude. I know Jotko is a big guy himself, but it seems like Sean Strickland carries it much more differently than what Jotko brings to the table. Uh, so in terms of method of victory, uh, obviously I got Sean Strickland here at minus 270. Might be a little bit too chalky for people, but maybe not somebody who's looking for a lock of the night play. But in terms of a prop, 
We're looking at Sean Strickland to win via decision at plus 140, and I don't think that's a bad line at all. Uh, you know, Jotko, obviously, his last two losses were by finish. Uriah Hall coming back from the depths of hell, coming back and knocking him out. And then, obviously, Brad Tavares. But who the hell gets knocked out by Brad Tavares? Not a lot of people. So that is a little bit questionable, especially when you're going up against a guy like Sean Strickland, who throws a lot of heat on his punches. Uh, but I will give Jotko the benefit of the doubt. I'm going plus 140, Strickland by decision. How are you seeing this one? Yeah, I guess Sean Strickland as well. Jocko, you mentioned Jocko, and we, Jocko. We know he's a striker. You know, this is a guy that's a striker. See, here's the thing, in my opinion. Jocko used to be a striker. Jocko was a guy that came to the UFC and had some decent Muay Thai. You know, decent Polish uh, linear fighter in and out of the pocket, moves well, good footwork, has some decent pop on his power. And quite honestly, I mean, he's fought a lot of really low-level guys, guys that are no longer with the promotion. When you look at his run, right, Bruno Santos, cut, Magnus Seedenblad, Tor Trong, Scott Askin, Brad Ascot. Tam Dan McCrory, Talis Slade is Dave Brandt. Tam Dan McCrory. Tam Dan McCrory, my boy. I know, I got him on Facebook. <laughs> Fucking hilarious. Very political these days. Of course. Uh, yeah, whack. Um, that was a crazy. Tam Dan McCrory got knocked out his last UFC fight, and he didn't remember anything from a month prior. Wow. Day. I know, I know. Scary shit. Anyways, th that's like a run of like straight eight straight fighters no longer with a, a job with the company. And also most of those guys have like long since retired, not even just like fighting on the regional somewhere else but just like are not no longer part of the game. Paul and, and Brad Tavares, they're both cutting in the UFC still, and they both knock him out. As you mentioned, the Brad Tavares one is especially uh, intriguing because like who else is Brad Tavares knocked out, right? Phil Baroni? Um, <laughs> not, 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 Phil's my boy, no disrespect to the New York badass. Uh, it's just like when that happened, he got knocked out by Hall. It's no problem. He actually won the first round against Ryan Hall. Second round gets caught. Hall's been known to do that to a guy or two. No problem. Getting caught by Tavares, okay, not a power puncher, but still a top talent guy. It's that that moment changes him. So now he gets Alan Almondovsky, and he just wants to wrestle. He goes four for four on takedowns, takes him down in every single round. Doesn't look to strike, doesn't want to throw hands at all, just looks, and hey, he needs the win, right? Three-fight losing streak. Just You need to secure the victory. But shit, dude, he tried to do the same thing against Marc-Andre Barrio. Shoot seven takedowns. Got one of them. One of seven takedowns against Barrio. And this is not Sanford MMA Barrio. This is Barrio not looking particularly good in the UFC Barrio, right? Uh, one for seven on takedowns, wins a split decision. And some. And you go to like MMA decisions. A couple of people did actually score the fight for Barrio. One of the judges also scored the fight for Barrio. Not the greatest look. Then the Eric Anders fight, he loses the third round to Eric Anders. His cardio didn't look particularly good. And wouldn't you know it, 0 for 5 on takedowns. Just like wants to get these fights to the ground. Wants to try to peel his opponent to the ground. Problem is, is that because he's a striker, his base is striking. He's just not that good of a wrestler. He can't no. get these guys to the ground. So it's a lot of cage work, man. It's a lot of holding the guy against the cage. And is it effective? It is effective. But again, you know, judging by one judge giving it to Marc-Andre Barrio, they're not always going to give you the win just on cage control. So it's Sean Strickland, dude's a better striker. He's got more power, 30 years old, making improvements. Had like a two-and-a-half-year uh, layoff because of that motorcycle crash, wrecked his knee. Since coming back... You see real-time motion, confidence getting there. Puts a puts a beating on Jack Marshman, but he's having fun. He's getting loose. I, I, I'm on record saying many times, best thing that could happen for him is getting 15 minutes against Marshman as opposed to sparking Marshman in two minutes because he, he had such a long layoff. He needed time. He needed octagon time. He needed to, to experience it and let his hands fly and see what works and what doesn't work. That was all good stuff. And then coming to the Brandon Allen fight, he kills Brandon Allen. And you see it's like, shit, man, this kid's flowing. This kid's good. You know, trained a lot of time out of Dan Henderson's camp in California, the former Team Quest in Temecula, 
working with guys like Sam Alvey, Chris Curtis, obviously Henderson himself, spending time in Las Vegas now, Extreme Couture. All the guys that have trained with him have said he's an absolute monster in the gym. It's when he's gonna, when is he going to realize that potential? But he's a confidence-based guy. I think his confidence is going right now. So I think he goes out there. I think he lands his hands. I think he does some damage. Jocko being knocked out by Brad Tavares would definitely lead one to suggest that Sean Strickland could also put some some combinations on him. But the way Jocko is going to approach this fight is in a stand-up battle. He's going to look to press him into the cage and hold him there. I don't think he successfully takes down Sean Strickland. But could he have success holding him up against the cage for pockets of the round? Yeah, yeah, could, could. I'm really hoping Strickland separates and puts uh, some hot fire on his chin, puts him out. That TKO prop looks good. I would say safe money, again, gun to my head. Because, I, I mean, I, I want to be honest at the beginning of the show. I don't like a lot of these props. I really don't. Gun to my head, I would say struggling by decision. But, I, again, if he was to knock out Jocko, it would not be surprising. The way he took out Brandon Allen, put an absolute beating right through him. And the Jack Marshman fight, I mean, yeah, that's why he's yelling out to Jack, like, but go, go, <laughs> go down. Dude. dude, I'm starting to feel bad. <laughs> like, you, you got a family home. See, you got go, You got someone to go home to. What are you doing? Yeah, but it's like dude, that's 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 good shit. Jocko not going to take that same amount of punishment, but Jocko not going to stand in front of you either. He will try to f force the action a bit. So, my pick is going to be Sean Strickland. That's obvious. Moneyline suggests he's a big favorite. Everyone's kind of on the same page. But uh, yeah, as far as a prop, like I, I would I would go with the decision prop. But like, shit, I, I hate losing decision props when my guy gets KO'd with like two, three minutes left or something stupid. Like, like it's so, it's so close yet so far. Yeah, it does happen all the time. You know, it's like, I'm, you're so close to this decision. You're so close. Two, three minutes left. That's why I like the over two and a half. I hate betting it. If you're going to bet over two and a half, might as well just take FICO as it is. Come on, it's two and a half minutes. True. But man, that two and a half minutes, <laughs> there's, they're so tired in that last two and a half minutes. That like anything can happen. It's a, it's a crazy sport, but that is why we love it. For sure, for sure. All right, let's move on to the next fight here. Uh, it seems like we're getting a little bit of a war between Kamozi and, uh, and Sorty and PFL right now. They're in the third round, sloppy as hell, as as we would expect. Uh, interested to see how that one ends up playing out. All right, let's actually move on to the next one here. We got Iwan Kutilaba against Dustin Jacoby, minus 140 on Kutilaba, plus 120 on Jacoby. Jacoby stepping in on short notice here for Devin Clark. Uh, and I'm interested to know how much this will actually affect him. Uh, obviously, we know he's coming back uh, just shy of two months ago uh, where he was able to pull up a decision victory over Maxine Grishin. A lot of people didn't think he won that fight, but we know what Jacoby brings to the table the guy likes to strike uh has a good calf kick um obviously a big striking background muay thai uh kickboxing and boxing uh was in the ufc before eventually got cut and now he's back in the ufc uh showing a little bit more you know obviously with the new training camp as well uh up there in colorado uh what iwan kutilaba the guy always has a lot of question marks about him right he's almost as much of a wild card as somebody that uh, fought last week and alex Oliveira, the guy has a ton of power in his hands he has a decent wrestling game as well just as we saw in the Khalil Roundtree fight, uh, you know, quickly got him down and eventually got him out of there. Uh, and I think he could do the same thing to Justin, Dustin Jacoby here. Um, I'm just not sure and and completely sold on it. Uh, the spot that I do like is uh, this fight getting extended a little bit, though. I, I do see that if uh, Kutilaba des decides to go out there and just grapple fuck uh, Dustin Jacoby, which is probably what he should do, uh, you know, before Jacoby really starts getting his kicks off and starts really laying on him uh, like that. Uh, the over one and a half doesn't look too bad at plus 100. I think this one could find itself late into the second round, probably early third round, but I think ultimately we'll see Kutalaba land takedowns and get that TKO finish from on top. Uh, I like Jacoby. I think he's a decent talent and I like his striking style, but I think that this is a bad matchup for him, especially on short notice. Not 
to mention short notice, like the guy only took the fight a week ago, right? So how good is his conditioning? Iwan Kutalaba's conditioning is something that I've always questioned in the past, but luckily for him, uh, Dustin Jacoby isn't a crazy cardio machine either. And again, add in the fact that he's coming in on short notice, how good is he ready to actually go out there and perform for 15 minutes against a berserker like Kutalaba? So I like Kutalaba. Kutalaba by KO at plus 120, not too bad of a line. I think he gets it going with his wrestling. I, th I think he takes uh, the victory home pretty much that way. Do you see this one playing out similarly? Yeah, I agree with you. So let's start draw the comparison for Justin Jacoby and Chris Camozzi. Once upon a time, they actually fought. Now they're both training partners. Then they both went to glory kickboxing, where they kind of reinvented themselves as kickboxers. Now yeah. they're both back in MMA, and ground game's costing it for them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he can strike. Justin Jacoby can strike. But for a guy that's out of Colorado at elevation, he doesn't have a very good gas tank. You see yeah. it routinely in a lot of his fights. He does fatigue the later the fight goes. He's also taken fights as, as high as heavyweight. And I think that coming down to 205, even though... Dude's probably got a frame of a middleweight. Maybe not so anymore. He has grown a lot. I don't think it's the easiest weight cut. Maybe that's affecting him. He's also 33 years old. Not exactly the youngest fighter going. Not exactly old. But I just like I don't know how much more Dustin Jacoby advances from this. It's that fight with Maxim Grishin that's a massive no bueno for me. Yeah. Is that I had him on every single ticket. I had him absolutely everywhere. And just utmost confidence that Maxim Grishin doesn't have any power. Dustin Jacoby is a far better kickboxer. This fight was largely going to play in the kickboxing range because Maxim Grishin just didn't really have the wrestling to take him down. This would be easy money for Dustin Jacoby. We won the bet. We learned our lesson. It was yeah. an absolute sloppy fight. He got very fatigued quick. He got dropped twice by Maxim Grishin. Now, when you look at Maxim Grishin versus Zanti Gulov one fight prior, it's like, <laughs> this guy doesn't have any power. Yeah. No power. Shows a lot of first-round finishes on his record. But, like, my God, he had Dustin Jacoby hurt. He had him tired. He had him beat up. In the third round, it's anybody's fight. Honestly, it is 1-1 in the third round. It's anybody's fight. And I thought Maxim Grishin did enough to win it. We ended up getting a Jacoby decision. I wasn't going to complain. We <laughs> cashed the bets. But it was like, I can't, I can't in good confidence, in good conscience, bet this guy going forward. And beyond all that is that he was given the fight that he wanted against Maxim Grishin, right? Maxim Grishin stood with him and struck with him the entire time. And still, he's not overly prevailing. I would have to say that this is a tough spot for sure. I mean, with Justin Jacoby, the upside for him is he keeps his fight standing. But with Ion Kudalaba, man, he's just going to chuck bombs. And hopefully, again, this is another guy with the skill to win the fight. With the ring IQ to potentially blow it for himself. But he's a, he's a former European combat Sambo champion. The guy is solid. The guy does have good takedowns. It's whether or not he's going to use those good takedowns. Keep in mind, this is a dude at 205 pounds. Took down, uh, took down um, Jared Cannonier six times, right? The fight with Khalil Roundtree took him down four times. Now, what do those guys got in common? Super menacing power punchers, man. Who wants to stand in front of Khalil Roundtree? He has no ground game. Suspect cardio. Well, why would you want to stand in front of him? Jared Cannonier? Want to stand in front of Jared Cannonier? No. Take these guys down. He was smart enough to realize that in those fights, goes out and gets the takedowns, and as a result, cruises to victories. He's got to realize that in this fight. They're not even as those guys are better strikers than Justin Jacoby, don't get me wrong. But at least there's that, at least that ability to recognize this guy's a pure striker. And I have wrestling. I do have ground skills. Now people want to say he has bad cardio, and I agree. But he's 27 years old, and his last two fights are Magomed and Kalev. What, what was he supposed to do? What was he supposed to do? Is he gonna take down Magomed and Kalev? No, no, no. Was he was he gonna drag him into deeper waters and capitalize on, on his bad gas tank? No, no, no. He, he had to catch him with a bomb. He had to go out there, he had to let his hands fly. And catch him with the bomb did not work, but it's Magomed and Kalev. I'm going to give him a pass there. I think that this is a, a much more winnable fight. The path of victory is there. Kudalaba needs to go out there and get those takedowns. 
if he does get those takedowns, you know, over one and a half, I like. <laughs> but be, but beyond that, you know what I mean? Like if he's on top of Justin Jacoby and he's and he's raining down some ground and pound from top, you know, if he's able to mount him, especially land some of those elbows that he did against Quill Roundtree, he could take Justin Jacoby out. If he, you know, as 50 Cent would say, get rich or die trying, and he <laughs> he, he don't get rich in there, then he's going to die trying. Like Justin yeah. Jacoby will tire him out and pick him apart. So it, it screams fight doesn't go the distance, but I think it's going to take them a little while to break the other guy. You know, just go out there and knock him out in the first round, right? That being said, Maxim Grish dropped him in the first round, and that one was extremely worrisome to me. So lots lots to consider. Again, as you can tell, confidence level not super high on a specific prop, but I think Kudalaba gets the job done, and the, the prop that I like the most in this spot is that over one and a half. Yeah, that one and a half is going to be a sweat. Those seven and a half minutes will definitely be a sweat, yeah. especially if Kutalaba is able to get that takedown nice and early. Ooh, those elbows are going to be raining down, and we know that for sure. So I'm glad that we see it the same way. Uh, Jacoby looks to be a fade moving forward, but maybe he turns his fortune around this weekend against Kutalaba, but we like Iwan Kutalaba to get the finish here. All right, let's get to the co-main event here. This is a highly debated one all week. We have seen a ton of line movement for it as well, too. We got minus 170 on Giga Chikadze, who opened up at minus 240 and uh, is now at 170-ish, and then we got plus 150 on the veteran Cub Swanson. 37-year-old Cub Swanson coming back. I think this is now one fight removed since he got his knee absolutely dismantled by somebody three or four weight classes above him and uh, Jake Shields. Uh, probably not the type of injury you want to have at this age and at this stage of your career, especially for something that you probably weren't getting paid as much for as you would be for a UFC uh, fight. But uh, interesting fight here again for Giga. You know, obviously the biggest fight in Giga's career. Um, you know, a co-main event spot going up against a legend like Cub Swanson. I think this is a great fight for him to go out there and showcase his striking. And that's obviously what has brought him to the dance. And not to mention his ever-evolving grappling game, right? Like what, the way he was able to uh, reverse um uh who was it? jamal emmers you know when he was on the ground that was very impressive to me the way he was able to nullify the amount of damage that was coming down to him from jamal emmers as well too that was very impressive and we know that's something that he's going to be working very hard on over there at king's mma to try to get his uh hand raised every time out but his striking game is where it gets going right he has a four inch height advantage as well as a four inch reach advantage in this fight and i think he's going to use every single inch of that here against cub swanson now cub is a little bit more unorthodox of a striker that likes to you know throw a ton of di different stuff but I think his best path to victory would be to get this fight to the ground and hopefully um, actually, uh, you know, pull off a submission or actually grind him out that way. The issue is, I just don't think that uh, Cub Swanson has the greatest wrestling game. And I think that's going to cause him trouble here. One, in terms of closing the distance against uh, Cub Swanson, or sorry, cl closing the distance against Giga Chikadze, and two, actually getting him down. I think that's a game, uh, that's a part of Giga Chikadze's game that's going to be improving on a fight-to-fight -fight basis. His kicking game is strong as hell, right? I think that's going to truly cause Cub Swanson the, 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 the problems in terms of actually closing the distance and getting it going. But I think it's the, ultimately the striking game of Giga that's going to be too much for Cub here. Now, Cub... Connor turned the clock back around last time against Daniel Pineda, coming in as a dog and absolutely cleaning the clock of Daniel Pineda in that second round. But that first round was fucking insane, back and forth. Both guys having a ton of success, not to mention that Daniel Pineda leg kick, which was pretty much crippling the movement of Cub Swanson. But Cub, uh, you know, endures it and then comes back and eventually gets the victory in that second round. So good win for him there. I just don't have him 
see him having that much uh, success here against Giga. I think you guys going to have him completely covered in the striking realm. And I think that I'll, I'll give the benefit of the doubt to Cub Swanson Shin here. I think we'll see Giga play a safe fight and actually pull this off via decision. And Giga by decision is plus 170. I like that line. I, I think that's a pretty solid line for a fighter that I'm expecting to go out there and point fight and not overextend himself against a veteran like Cub Swanson, who, one, might be looking for takedowns, and two, has a decent striking game of his own. Obviously not to the level of Giga, though. So I like Giga here. It's crazy that the line is continuing to move towards the Cub Swanson side. I'd be very interested to see what it looks like um, you know, on fight day or even after the weigh-ins tomorrow. But I, if it stays around that minus 170 range, I think it's a great bet, to be honest, as a money line. But we got we are here for props, and I'm going to give you guys Cub Swanson – or sorry, uh, Giga Chikadze via decision at plus 170. How do you see this one? Yeah, again, it's another tough fight to get a read on. So Giga Chikots is probably the better striker, right? And also the fact that he's six feet against five foot eight for Cub Swanson. You know, yeah. he's got four inches in the height department, four inches on the reach department. And one thing I don't like about Giga Chikots is that he's pretty low output. Like one thing about him, but man, that's just because he wants to counter punch. He's a natural counter puncher. Kukushin black belt, uh, guys, a former glory uh, kickboxer. Obviously, he's got that accreditation. He's got that skill in his back pocket. It's this is MMA. You, know, you need to put those other skills to good use. You need to learn that takedown defense. You need to learn that wrestling. And that's what I'm not fully sold on. And like this is a big task, no doubt about it. It's 37 year old Cub. It is a, a beaten up, war torn, you know, seen better days version of Cub. But we all used to laugh at Giga Chikatsa, but the guys he fought in the regional scene. You know, these guys are 0 and 16. These guys are like 0 and 8. Those are the guys he fought before coming to the UFC. But let's keep in mind, right? That Brandon Davis fight, he got taken down four times. Jamal Emmer's fight, he got taken down twice, but Jamal Emmer's could have done much better with it. Irwin Rivera is not a wrestler. Omo Morales is not a wrestler. Jamie Simmons is not a wrestler. I, I, I can see where the path to victory still remains the same. You need to get this guy to the ground. That would be the fact. Remember even on Contender Series, he lost to Austin Springer? Yep. Austin Springer scored four takedowns. So, again, no doubt he's been working on his takedown defense at King's MMA. No doubt he's got the best wrestlers he can, the best jiu-jitsu guys coming in and working with him. It's that we don't really know how much he's improved. He stuffed the one takedown from Omar Morales, and as you mentioned, the Jamal Emers fight, he did a good job getting back up. But if Emers would have fought a smarter game plan, Emers could have routinely just kept taking him back down and wouldn't have gotten robbed on a split. By the way, did, did you think he actually won that fight? Like, it's a close fight. I was pissed off with Emers for fighting a bad... Uh, Bad game plan, so I was okay with Giga winning. But still, man, that's a close fight. Could go either way. Two more takedowns, a little more top control for Emers. It's his fight. Cubs got to go out there and, again, fight a smart game plan. Now, we've been talking about Ian Kudalaba and TJ uh, Brown fighting smart game plans, right? But it's because they both have paths to victory that involve wrestling. It's whether they're going to be smart enough to take that path to victory and not burn themselves out and get gassed out. Cubs a savvy veteran of the game, man. He's fought an absolute who's who. You talked about Ronda Marcos earlier in the, the list of opponents that she's had. Like, Cubs been there, done that against everybody. And as soon as you write him out, oh, this guy's not good anymore. Oh, he can't quite take a punch anymore. He's not an elite level guy. He's always got one more trick up his sleeve. He's always got one more hurrah. Now, when I think about Giga Chakots, I think to myself, you know what? He, he's like a 60 strike output guy in a 15-minute in a fight at best. You look at his numbers, right, and you look at a lot of these fights, uh, the Omar Morales fight, 65, the Irwin Rivera fight, 61, the Jamal Emers fight, 38, Brandon Davis, 59. It's low output. Cubs eclipsed 100 significant strikes four times in his career. He landed 135 against Crow and Gracie, 129 against Shane Burgos. In a fight, he arguably got robbed against Shane Burgos. You know, 209 against Artem Lobov. Mind you, that was five rounds. 111 against Duho Choi. 
Output's not a problem. Now, I agree. Giga Chikot's better striker. Daniel Pineda hurt Cub Swanson's last time out. Like, I, I am agreeing. His best days are behind him. But there's still a little bit left in the tank. Now, Cub can strike long enough with his volume to at least make it appealing to the judges, keep it close on the scorecards to the judges, but his path to victory is not strike for 15 minutes. It's mix in the wrestling, mix in those takedowns. Cub's not a great wrestler per se, but he also knows how to wrestle. He's a solid BJJ black belt. He needs to get this fight to the ground. If he doesn't, he's going to be intercepted at range, getting kicked a whole lot, probably goes down on the judges' scorecards, and then loses the fight. But if he can make this a dog fight, who prevails better in dog fights than, than, than Cub Swanson? The Duho Choi fight, fight of the year. It goes into a really dark place. He pulls it. You were there live. I was there live. Yeah. Absolutely crazy fight, intense. But he goes to that dark place to get there, right? It's impressive. The Shane Burgos fight, 129 to 134. It's just a war. It's an absolute war, tit for tat. Both men taking their best shots. And anybody that knows me knows my absolute love for Shane Burgos. Love him. Cub Swanson gave me one hell of a sweat that night. But then he upsets against Cron Gracie and upsets against Daniel Pineda, cashes his two dog tickets, and then the Pineda fights the same thing. You want to make this a dog fight? He he broke him. He tired. Now Pineda's got bad cardio. Let's be real here. But once Cub started to have his way, he was able to put a pace on him. So what he needs to do here, he's got to put a pace on Giga Chikots. He needs to get him to the ground. He needs to work him. And then that would open up some grappling. And if he's able to mix in that grappling, then he's live. He's live as an underdog spot. I like the straight up underdog play on Cub more than anything else. But I suppose a Cub, Cub by decision. Um, you know, if I had to, again, gun to my head, um, go with, go with a prop. The other thing I'm looking at is, is this to bank of, of some rounds, right? Yeah. If Cubs going to win, he's going to score with some takedowns. He's going to have to grind him out. Could he open up a finish later in the fight? Potentially with Giga Giga's knocked, knocked out, uh, Jamie Simmons his last time out. And he also dropped Omar Morales and he dropped whoever he fought, uh, Irwin Rivera. He, he knocked yeah. down Irwin Rivera. He's scored three knockdowns his last three fights. But the power, especially in glory as well, you look look at his entire body of work, the knockouts aren't quite there and not really in a lot of these early knockouts. So I like that over one and a half, but it's minus 325. The way Cubs fights, and he's fighting a caliber striker like Giga, n- not in on it. So, like, I hate to coward out on you and say, you know, one of the best fights on the card, co-main event, I don't want any action on it. I will have small action on it, but I don't think it's – it's not smart money. There's not a great lean to be had here unless you're going to take the underdog straight up as the dog money plus 150. But we're here to talk about parlays, and the only thing I can really say that I would take that shot at is if I was taking a shot at Swanson, I think Swanson's able to get it done by decision, and that is currently sitting at uh, plus 290, right? So not if anything, bad. if anything, that's, that's the road I'm looking at. Giga could pull this off. Giga's 5-0 in the UFC. Like, look how many guys he's proven wrong. But Giga's got the world's greatest manager, man, because, like, this is – even this fight, he gets an aged legend. Like, why doesn't he got to fight some D1 All-American? It's like, no, 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 no. We'll, t- we'll, take, the, we'll take the long route around. <laughs> Talk about guys that have been around in the game. I think Glayson Tebow just stepped into the cage for PFL. God damn. Might be on all the sauce now as well, considering that he has USADA no longer to have to worry you know, about. It's weird. So did you read that article? Uh, Glyson was saying that he fought like seven weeks ago in a one-night tournament, won two fights. It was in Germany for a music video. Did you read any of that? I did not hear that, no. Okay, whenever the show's done, check it out. And not that it matters. He's fighting right now. But according to him, and they got the music video. I watched it. Uh, according to him, he got paid to fly out to Germany and compete in a one-night tournament, four guys, one-night tournament, two fights, and for some money. And what it was, it was a German rapper was filming a music video. They're like in the middle of nowhere. It was just like a cage, like helicopters flying overhead. Wow. 
Yeah, yeah. And apparently this German rapper was like, I want real fights. So they organized this one-night tournament. Gleison Tebow comes in. Gleison Tebow wins. And But they show the footage. And Gleison did a whole interview about it. Fuck, I won these two fights. I wonder if they're going to put them on my record because technically they run sanction, this and that. But uh, you watch it, dude. It looks straight up fixed. Like straight Oh, it looks up. fixed? <laughs> yeah. The, the first one does. The second one, I can I can give the pass to the second one. Like Gleison seems to take him down. And it's they, they slow down the shots, but it does look like he's chipping away at this guy with some ground and pound. But the first fight, it's like Glyson gets dropped on like a phantom shot. There's like a spinning back, like wow. a fist. Okay, I got to check Glyson this don't throw spinning back fist, man. Like, yeah, of course. I don't know. The whole thing just absolutely ranked. So I went against him. <laughs> the Zeperino, <laughs> but we'll see what happens. All right, all right. Hopefully we can wrap up the this podcast before this fight finishes off. And obviously we got Rory coming up in the main event for PFO. We want to see how Sanford MMA Rory is able to put his game together and hopefully he can win that check. But uh, main event coming up right here, we got Yuri Prohaska going up against Dominic Reyes. Very important fight for uh, Yuri Prohaska. Obviously, makes his stamp in the UFC by knocking out Volkan Uzdemir last year in July at UFC 251. And uh, when is the last time you've seen uh, Volkan Uzdemir drop like that, get finished like that? Never. He's been finished twice in the UFC before that, but it was ground and pound by Daniel Cormier. And then I believe it was a uh, rear naked choke by Anthony Smith after Volkan had pretty much gassed out his, uh, his tank there. But Yuri Prohaska has some serious power. The guy's 6'4 with an 80-inch reach and moves very well, too. I'm not a big fan of his hands-down style, but that definitely works for him, right? He reminds me of like a light heavyweight version of Brandon Roy Val and Tony Ferguson and the fact that he just creates chaos, and that kind of is what he thrives in. Dominic Reyes, obviously much more technical of a fighter, has some good hands, making some good developments, obviously. The one drum that they're banging on a lot, especially going into that John Jones fight, is he's athletic as shit. Okay, we get it. He's athletic. He played football or whatever the hell it was. And he won the he possibly won the first two or three rounds of that John Jones fight and then just takes the rest of the fight off and ultimately costs himself a shot at that title. Uh, and then the next fight goes out there against Jan Blahovic, gets another shot at the title. Blahovic puts together a great game plan centered around that body kick, which just absolutely marks up Dominic Reyes uh, a round and a half into the fight. And then he follows up with some punches and eventually gets Dominic Reyes out of there too. So that Polish power comes through for uh Jan Blachowicz. Now will the Czech power of Yuri Prohaska come through here? And one thing that we have to actually um kind of start to trust now, like the lower you go in weight classes, the more technique matters. The higher you go in weight classes, the less technique matters. It obviously still matters, don't get me wrong, but the power is high enough that it kind of subsides the amount of technical advantages the opponent might have. And that's exactly what I'm seeing here with Prohaska. Again, I'm not a big fan of his hands-down style, but it works for him. And if he's able to stay away from the big power of Dominic Reyes, I can absolutely see him finding that opening him absolutely uh, demolishing Dominic Reyes here, man. I, this guy has double the amount of experience that Dominic Reyes has. Now, let's we can obviously say that Dominic Reyes has better level of competition, but you can't nullify well, the fact that Prohaska has been going out there and just you know, competing for as long as he has, you know, over there in Risen and taking those, uh, what, what do they have, like uh, first round 10 minutes or something, some crazy thing like that, and he's able to actually go out there and have some solid performances. But like, you know, putting King Mo and Brandon Halsey and CB Dalloway and, and Fabio Maldonado, shout out to Fabio Maldonado, up against Volkan Uzdemir and, you know, everybody that uh, Dominic Reyes has fought at, at this point in time, Jan Bohovic, John Jones, all those guys, it, it pales in comparison. But we all have to recognize that Prohaska does have power in his hands. He's pretty fast for his weight class as well. And he does pack a lot of power. And I think that's ultimately what's going to be the, 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 the decision maker here. 
However, I think it's going to take a little bit longer than people are expecting, which is why the line is set at over under one and a half. Uh, the over one and a half at minus 155, I don't think that's a bad line. I think we can see these guys kind of take their time to get comfortable in this fight, especially Dominic Reyes uh, coming off of two straight losses now. He really wants to make sure he's on his P's and Q's, especially with a crazy fighter like Prohaska in front of him. So I expect this to go you know, deeper into the second round. I think over one and a half is not too bad of a shot. But ultimately, yeah, I'm going to go with Prohaska. I think he lands that knockout shot. Uh, you know, Say what you want about Dominic Reyes being may, way more technical, the better fighter. But I think that Prohaska power is something that's going to be uh, uh, something to be reckoned with inside the UFC. So I'll go with Prohaska by ko obviously which is plus 125 not too far off from that minus 130 which is his money line so i don't know if you really want to take that plus 125 shot on the ko uh but uh yeah i, I do like prohaska here i think he gets it done how do you like this one man actually stole the words right out of my mouth for the most part i, I got yuri i got yuri knockout i got the over one and a half i hope that yuri, yuri just goes for it right off the get-go yeah. so you're we're gonna be sweating this over one and a half is that we're hoping that Dominic Reyes is durable enough to take some damage. And Reyes reminds me of Kelvin Gaslam in that he had a career-best performance in a world title fight where he gave the defending champion all he could handle and ultimately end up losing, you know, a, a very spirited fight. But the same guy that's come back, mind you, he just had one fight against Jan Blockwitz. It's like he was super tentative. He didn't really look to engage him. And Dominic Reyes is a good athlete. You mentioned he played football. He also played bat baseball. He was like a good three-letter sport um athlete in high school and played in college good athlete but as far as mma goes like he's mostly just an athletic build fighter he's got a decent kicking game likes to kick the legs stay on the outside moves well doesn't have a ton of power as we saw in the john jones fight maybe he did win the first three but as soon as he starts to fatigue in four and five i mean cardio didn't look great the, the Jan blockwitz fight he was super predictable and every time he got hit he just kind of like win stop like didn't didn't like it now mind you it's yawn it's polish power and yawn eventually gets a knockout like i'm not trying to discredit him at all but even his fight with volcan uzdemir man is he tentative and mind you i had him bet i was glad he won but it's like did he win because it's a really close fight is way closer than it need to be and it's all on the basis of he just doesn't open himself up and let his hands go he had a great fight against osp he had a great fight against john jones the other moments outside of that against the upper echelon guys, he hasn't really wowed me all that much. Now, coming into the UFC, every, a lot of people were on Vulcan. I want to say Vulcan was the favorite over Yuri in his debut. Yeah, right. And I'm all over Yuri. Man, I hated hearing it then, and I'm hearing the same things now. People are like, well, he's a can crusher. How's he going to do when he fights in the UFC? It's like, can crusher? First and foremost, let's look at his wins, right? So he's got a win over Darko Stosic, who fought in the UFC, but he's the only man to ever knock out Darko Stosic. That's what's important there, right? He's got wins over Satoshi Ishii, knocked him the fuck out, minute and a half. Satoshi Ishii, Olympic gold medalist for judo, former uh, veteran, big name veteran. He knocked out Vadim Nemkov, the current Bellator 205-pound champion, caused him to quit on his stool between rounds. Kazushi Fushida, pride veteran, right? Carl Albrechtson, stud, dude, Swedish, Swedish wrestling stud, Currently fights in Bellator as well. He's in their tournament and is looking good. Jake Kuhn is Jake Kuhn. Brendan Halsey is a former Bellator champion. King Mo's a former Strike Force champion. Fabio Maldo, CB Dalloway, Volcan Uzma are all UFC veterans. Like, fuck more does he have to do, man? He's been fighting in a Czech Republic in Japan. Like, he's been fighting all the best guys that he could. He's been looking good. Now, the other thing is like cardio. Oh, man, he's used tiring in a Volcan Uzma fight. First of all, he broke Volcan, right? He's tired. He's got hit in the first round. Fights with his hands low. You mentioned he's got defensive lapses for sure. He gets hit in the first round, but in the second round, he, like, he just keeps coming at him. And when you when you look at all these first-round finishes, it's not like it's just, oh, well, he's got to finish you in the first round or is he done? Because you nailed it again, my friend. 
10-minute rounds. He finishes he finishes uh, Brendan Halsey the six-minute mark, right? He finishes Carl Albrechtson 957 into the round. He causes Nemkov to quit after the 10-minute mark. Like, good God. He also has a third-round finish over King Mo to avenge himself. And, and there's another great point. Let's talk about his three pro losses, okay? King Mo, the former Strike Force champion. Again, high-level loss. Abdul Karim Edilov was signed to the UFC. He's an absolute stud. He'll absolute stud. He'll never fight in the UFC due to some political reasons, but the guy is a monster amongst men. And then he lost to Boyan Velikovic uh, nine years ago, and Boyan also UFC veteran. So his three losses are at a good level of competition, and a lot. He's got a lot of quality wins. He's only 28 years old. He seems to be extremely confident. He can take a good shot, and keep coming after you. You got to put him lights out, or he's going to keep coming after you. Now a guy like Volkan could. Time's up. He could put you out. But, <laughs> Those guys got power. Reyes is not a one-punch power guy. So to get Yuri off you, you're going to have to get his respect and turn his lights off. And if Reyes doesn't do that, he's going to take a lot of damage in those first two rounds. And I would think that Yuri puts him out in the first two, two and a half rounds. So as much as I got the over one and a half, I don't know that it lasts a whole lot longer than that. What I'm going to look to also do is try to maybe live bet this fight. Whereas I got Yuri, and Yuri's going to go out there and deliver. If for whatever reason this is going into a third or fourth round and Reyes is still there, Maybe that's my chance to hedge out. I know I'll have a much better live betting opportunity to take Reyes after he's down a couple rounds. Uh, but yeah, my, my heart and my money seems to be uh, on Yiri. So I'm going to agree with that over one and a half. I don't think he's just going to blow Reyes out of the water. But I think eventually this constant attack for 10 minutes, you know, 12 minutes, 13 minutes, maybe Reyes topples over. And again, it's the main event. It's the most exciting fight on the card. It's got my money for fight of the night. Yiri fights, probably going to be fight of the night, win or lose. I'm like, you know, I'd rather bet these PFL shit show fights and like make some money <laughs> than just be like, oh, well, I needed one side of it. So I jumped on one side. I'm going to go year. You're going to go knock you. going to go one and a half. But like, you know, I've been doing good. I've been, no, I'm not betting on those one championship cards. And that saved me a ton. That's, that, that's exactly. And that's not like me, right? The PFL last week, I said, you know what? I'm going to bet Clay Collar. That's it. I'm not even going to bet in these parlays. I'm showing restraint. You know, this card was too good to pass up. So barring Rory McDonald shitting in my apple pie, you know, it, it's the spots. But I look at the card tomorrow, and I'm obviously going to have to tweet out parlays, but, like, I'm not going to lie to you, man. I don't feel good about them at all. Like, there's a lot of variables in these fights. Think about this for a minute. We've talked about this would, should, could in almost all of these fights. It's all like this guy could win the fight if yeah. he does this, but I'm not fully trustworthy he's going to do it. In order for me to have a perfect night, I need Luke Sanders to fight a good game plan. Right? <laughs> I need TJ Brown to fight a good game plan. Yeah. I need Ronda Marcos to fight a good game plan. I need... Um, Women's MMA e chalk minus 390 to come through. Yeah, I need Ian Kudalaba to fight a yeah. good game plan. You know, yeah. Those are all favorites, so I still need Cub Swanson and Cody Stamen to pull some magic out of their fucking ass. And then I've got Yiri who fights like a madman in yeah. the main event. This does not sound like sound advice to be parlaying these guys in lengthy batches. Exactly. But baby, that's what we do. That's what we're <laughs> in the business of. We love the fight game. We love having the thrill. We love the sweat. It's all part of the game. And uh, yeah, we're going to need some good bounces. But I'm hoping if Rory can pull it off, Seth Reno can coast here this last round, uh, that you know, we got to, just like last week with Clay Collard, Clay Collard built in that bankroll, lost it all. Randy Brown brought it back up, <laughs> proceeded to lose that as well. It was an even money weekend. And yeah. I was, I had a good weekend, a lot of fun fights, entertaining, and I didn't lose any money. I'll take that. 
But dude, if I hadn't hit a 450 Clay Collard and a, and a, and a 550 Randy Brown, I'm losing money, right? So it wasn't a great weekend. This weekend, got to be smart, got to be tight, got to build that bankroll again, just like we're going to try to do with your PFL so that we can take an educated shot on the UFC card. Absolutely. And one last prop that I will bring up for this main event is actually uh, fight won't start round four, minus 210. Fight won't start round three, minus 130. So that's just something a little bit more for people to digest. I'm expecting violence in this fight. I'm expecting a finish. I'd be very surprised if we see both, guy go, both guys go 25 minutes here. Uh, and somebody in the chat did say, my guy J-Dog right here, just load up on no distance at minus 345. And we should hopefully be covered <laughs> when fair, we've fair seen crazy thing out, <laughs> things happen. All right, let's get into uh, people's pretty much favorite part of the show here. We'll give you guys our three best bets, and then we're going to get the fuck up on out of here let me pull this bitch up oh why is it giving me that flashing screen let me try that one more time there we go and bang all right so first and foremost i got tj brown via sub plus 525 i think he's going to get kai kamaka down slowly start to wear him out and then that submission should present itself probably in the second or third round uh yeah we, we know kai kamaka horrible gas tank tj brown questionable gas tank himself but i'd rather take the grappler over the striker here who has absolutely no power in his hands uh and i'm going tj brown via submission even inside the distance is not too shabby of a line if people are thinking to be going that way in case he goes for the ground pattern instead of the sub but i like the sub plus 525 all right next up benitez and pierce starts round three i think that uh, a lot of people are getting into that recency bias here which is why the line is as close as it is for that starts round three um minus 105 i think is a great line yeah i mean benitez and pierce are quite durable guys outside of that uh, joe lozon fight for pierce but i gotta chalk that up to you know ufc debut in joe lozon's backyard let's give him the the benefit of the doubt there and benitez has you know, notoriously been pretty durable unless he's fighting a guy like Sadiq Yusuf. So I do see that fight getting into the 10, 11, 12 minute mark and uh, cashing that round three start, starting at uh, minus 105. And then lastly, I told you guys, it's going to be a little bit more chalky. I got to go with the under over two and a half in the Marcos and Pinero fight at minus 220. More, more often than not, when you get women's MMA fights, you're looking at minus 350, minus 400 for the over two and a halves. But this week, we have Pinero, who's on a six-fight winning streak with all first-round finishes, but that's over people on the regional scene, people that probably wouldn't cut it inside the UFC, and then obviously most recently on the Dana White Contender Series, where she was able to dispatch of uh, Stephanie Frausto within uh, three minutes or so. But Marcos, very durable, has, you know, I believe only two losses in the UFC via finish. That was to Courtney Casey over five or six years ago, and then obviously Mackenzie during a couple fights ago, but I do expect the dur durability of Marcos to pay off here, and I do see this fight going late. Now, the only question mark in terms of this is how good Pinero's gas tank is if she has horrible gas tank issues she could possibly just you know roll over and die in that third round and then that would probably be the only way this over two and a half does not hit but I'm going to give her the benefit of the doubt. I think she'll have enough cardio to make it 15 minutes, but I don't know if it'll be enough for her to actually win by decision. But at least we get covered with both people, if no matter who wins by decision here, with the over two and a half and minus 220. All right, Cody, you're up. All right. Well, I definitely puss-pussed out here early and took the coward's way out, but I just don't see how this fight is anything but that. I one time watched Rob Dabashvili get choked unconscious, and the decision prop still hit. So, I mean... <laughs> Yeah, he's just a decision machine, you know. He just gets on these guys, he grinds them, multiple takedowns, you know, extends the fights out, and just doesn't really have that big, big power, that big submission game. Cody Stamen is extremely durable. It's gonna, it's been one hell of a task to take him out anyways, and Rob Devash really just doesn't have that finishing ability. Flip side to that, 
Cody Stamen's a grinder, man. Good wrestling, going to come in good shape. He's highly motivated for this fight. I do believe he has a slight striking advantage. I do believe he can keep his close competitive, win some of these exchanges, get taken down, get back up, make him work, and hopefully squeak it out on two of the three judges' scorecards. Regardless of who wins this thing, it's going the distance. So minus 300, it's a little bit big, I get it, but I'm going to parlay that with a couple of other spots that I like. Moving on, got to get a little more bold, and we're going to go with a little plus, plus money, 130. Sean Strickland by decision. Again, Sean Strickland is the kind of guy that could go out there, let his hands go and put Jocko away. If he's feeling good, you know, the way he beat Brandon Allen, the way he beat up on Jack Marshman, is Jocko going to take that? The difference there is that Marshman stood right in front of him, right? He's a boxer. He's a Welsh boxer from the army. That's his style. He's not going to get away from that at this stage in his career. He is who he is. Brandon Allen was very cocky. Like he was very dismissive of any, everything that Sean Strickland brought to the table. And being at Sanford MMA, he was like, I've got some great striking my uh, under my belt now. Check it out. Instead of using the grappling, which would have been Sean Allen's best path to victory. So honestly, when I think about this as well, I think, geez, Jocko's not going to do that. He'll try to grind him. And in grinding him, he should slow this thing down and hopefully survive the 15 minutes. But I think Sean Strickland's going to stuff the takedowns, land the better striking, and as a result, pick up this decision. So we're going to look at that for minus 130. And then, hey, you got a plus 525. I at least got to get something decent here. We're going, we're going to my boy Sanders <laughs> plus 230. My God. I trust Colonel Sanders more than I, I, I can trust this Sanders. Uh, it's always been the same shit, man. He's got the skill. He's got all the skill in the world. He just makes very, very questionable decisions, both in, inside the ring and outside the ring. Everyone knows he broke up with the hottest WWE superstar. No reason. Oh, man. Anyways, I know he needs a big win here. Sanders has got the skill. He's got to put it on Corrales. Corrales is very durable. That's, again, why I think this thing goes to decision. But I think that Sanders has got the striking advantage. You know, 6-1 to one is by the numbers is how much he, he should outstrike him. But even if he goes out there and puts 2-3-1 to three, one pace on him, mixes in a couple takedowns, bags some of these rounds, wins this fight. That's all I can hope on. Plus 230 was a good enough price tag that I want to take a shot there. All right, there you have it. Our three best prop bets for UFC Vegas 25 going down this weekend. Me and Cody see this card pretty much the same from top to bottom. So hopefully it pays off for us and hopefully we can cash some of these tickets. All right, uh, Cody, back end here. Obviously, I want to give you the uh, the platform, anything you want to say on the way out, and then I'll wrap this thing up. Basically, all I want to say is if Ray Cooper or Roy McDonald blow this for me, he's officially <laughs> dead to me. Outside of that, though, yeah, no, I always appreciate all the support, everyone dropping by. You guys have been awesome since we've moved over the channel away from odds.com. Uh, feeling the love, feeling the support, and yeah, I just want to cash you guys some tickets and uh, keep the good times going. So always a pleasure, Locke, for providing the platform and having me on the show. And uh, yeah, if you guys want to check out another banger of a show, check out the Friday Post Weigh-In Show. So the guys will be able to talk about all their last little bit details, last little bit of a stories that come out of the weigh-ins and give you those final takes. So you can wrap in some bets and hopefully catch some tickets on Saturday. So yeah, let's kick some ass guys. Like Cody said, you guys can catch me tomorrow night, 9 p.m. Eastern. I'm going to be joined by MMA Knockout Bets, Sparring with Reality, my guy Luke, and then obviously James from Lucrative MMA Betting. Tomorrow night, 9 p.m. Eastern, we're going to be doing the Ultimate Wayne Show with the Wayans in mind. Let's see if Benitez can successfully get down to 145 once again. That should definitely have an uh, effect on how Cody uh, starts uh, putting his parlays together as well. So let's see how Benitez looks on the scale. Obviously, there's a couple other people that we need to worry about, but that's where you guys can find me tomorrow night. And always... You guys can find us here at 8 p.m. Eastern on Thursdays, giving you guys the props, propping you guys up for the upcoming UFC shows. Uh, yeah, that's pretty much it. You guys can find me at MMALOTN on Twitter. You guys can follow him at CJ Saftik, this side, sorry, this side, uh, at CJ Saftik on Twitter. Uh, and yeah, we'll see you guys next week. Good luck on your bets. And uh, yeah.
We'll see you guys next week.